As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. A tremendous week of football. We just saw a lot of huge, huge games, especially in the AFC. Tons of contenders playing against other contenders. We're going to talk about all of those games today. I uh, I don't even know where to begin because I I just I feel like I'm coming down from a a football high, especially if you watched. That Browns and Ravens games, I mean, one of the best games of the year, if not the best game of the year. So I just, I'm so jacked that December football is back. It's the best time of the year. Great, great week of football. EJ, buddy, how you doing? How you feeling? What's your big reaction to the games this week? I'm feeling incredibly lucky. Uh, I almost didn't watch the Browns-Ravens game live. I was going to do some film work. I was going to put the script together for tonight. Uh, did a bunch of th- I was like, nah, I should I should turn it on. I can work while it's on. So I turned it on at the end of the first quarter, and obviously that was a tremendous decision because game of the year candidate, pretty much as soon as it was over, you knew that that was going to be in the running for game of the year. Just a really enjoyable football game. Sometimes doing all this work, uh, we I don't want to say we forget the fandom of football. We always enjoy looking at it. We always get jacked up by the big plays, but occasionally you just really get caught up in a game, whether or not it's your team, and just enjoy the hell out of it. And that was last night's Browns-Ravens game. So much fun. So feeling incredibly lucky. And again, late season football, we're starting to see the kicking game get a little little screwy. We're starting to see the run matter a little bit more. Starting to see defenses tighten up on the goal line a little. Uh, yeah, we're getting down to brass tacks. We're getting down to the time that it matters and separating contenders from pretenders. And that's it's a great time of year. So I brought on a local beer. Always love it when I can do that. This is Narrows Brewing, really close to me here in Tacoma. And they have a Tacoma series of beers that they named after neighborhoods in Tacoma, Washington. And this is the Proctor India Ale. Proctor is a neighborhood right right near where I went to college. And um, I love Narrows Brewing. I know the guys that started it. Um, They make several tremendous beers, but I have not had this version of the Proctor India Pale Ale. So I am excited about that. Um, And for my shot, I got some Pendleton Midnight because I ran out of Pendleton and was going to go get some more. And they were out of Pendleton, but they had Midnight. And I thought, well, you know, that's just about the same thing. I like it just as much. So 
That's my shot of the week. What do you I have? feel like Pendleton's got Pendleton's got a sponsors at this point, right? I mean, uh, well, <laughs> if we could get Pendleton or Jameson or oh, you know, anything you like. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean you've I, had, I, I like you've had people send you alcohol though, so that's close, right? You've had at least two distilleries send you alcohol. I'm I'm still on the Schneid for that, but I, I feel like we're getting there. Yeah, I'm just saying, if anybody knows anybody at Pendleton or Jameson, hook us up here, because we're, we're drinking them damn near every week. Give yeah, them free we're, <laughs> we're supporting them. They should support us back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have a little bit of something different. I've never had it in the pod. I've had this bottle for a while, but I've never had it in the pod before. Um, that is High West American Prairie Bourbon Whiskey, which was a limited release. I think they did like a year or two ago, and I just I still happen to have the bottle, about half of it left. It's a blend of three different bourbons, a two-year, a six-year, and a 13-year-old bourbon, which, if you know anything about bourbon, 13 years old is very old for a bourbon. They, they usually do not last in the cask that long. Most bourbons you see out there are aged somewhere between, at least the high-end ones are aged somewhere between 10 to 12. Uh, anything above 12 is, is kind of hard to get. So this was a blend with 13 in it. Uh, and so it's a little bit more what's the word clingy <laughs> uh it's it's like it's it's got like a, a viscosity to it it really lingers a long time super long finish very very sweet lots of honey lots of vanilla uh great sipper for this time of year just because it goes down so easy i have no idea what the proof is but i don't think it's that high uh but if i start slurring uncontrollably you you know what it is but uh love i've actually list. had it this you is have. a rarity. A lot of yeah, a lot of times, especially when you bring out rare things, I've I've not had it before. But I actually had a, a glass of that at a Christmas party about two years ago, and it was lovely stuff. I've not come across it since, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I I can't wait to see what you think of it. Yeah, High West makes phenomenal stuff. A lot of it's blends that they do. They kind of have a, a master distiller that specializes in blends and every single one of their releases I've absolutely loved. I have three different bottles of them and uh, man, they, they do good work. But uh, with that being said, EJ, why don't we get into kind of overall trends for this week before we dive into the individual games, excuse me. Uh, what are some of the things that you noticed when watching all the games from this past Sunday and Monday that kind of stand out as themes among all the games? Yeah, well, early in the year, we had uh, some rough weeks for kickers. I don't know if it was the limited offseason or just general rust, no preseason. There are two or three weeks at the beginning of the season where we noted that it was extremely rough for kickers, and then everybody pretty much leveled out, and we had rough games for kickers, but league-wide, it seemed that Oh, we were pretty much back to the norm. Oh, we fell off that wagon a little bit this week. Uh, we had a lot of kickers miss a lot of kicks, both field goals and extra points. Um, case in point, both the Vikes and the Jets field goal kickers missed three field goals each. So that's six field goals missed mm. in two games. Just two kickers mixed, missed six field goals. There were a multitude of other missed field goals and missed extra points. So that that trend is kind of back. Weather's coming in. Not all those kicks were affected by weather. Um, but, yeah, it was a rough week for kickers again, and it affected the outcome of, of a few of those games. Not not the Jets game so much, but certainly the Vikes would have been a little bit closer to the Bucks uh, with three more field goals. Um, yeah. One-handed interceptions. I can't remember... Usually if we have one one-handed interception in a week, it is a notable play. It's on all the highlight reels. 
there were multiple one-handed interceptions this week in the same week. I can't remember that ever happening, so that stuck out quite a bit. Um, and then big returns on special Tyus teams. Bowser technically had one. Oh yeah, I I I, <laughs> I have to toot my own horn on that one. I had an elite tweet on that one because I said Ravens right now, and I got a uh, gif of Bowser waving his finger. and it came out within like 30 seconds and i was like come on i don't i those are normally the things i think of like an hour later but um that one the timing and the image combined good stuff um he's had three in the last uh four games by the way tyus bowser and and this one was a beautiful one-hander if you were watching that game and you were listening to lewis riddick he he pulled it right up he was like you know this isn't the first time that he's had that and they need to know that he'll drop in coverage it's great play by him flashed in and then dropped into the lane uh mayfield never saw him and he ended up basically one-handing it uh and then the return great great play in in what was a crazy game so can almost get lost but there were you know two others besides that that i could think of offhand so just a really rare circumstance we don't get to see that very often and then lots of big returns on special teams there were quite a few uh there was a couple for touchdowns and then Lots of big returns, you know, past midfield that set their team up in really good position. Um, Not all those were game-turning plays, but certainly more big returns this week uh, in a single week than I can remember in quite a while. So kickers having a rough week, one-handed interceptions, and big returns on special teams. You know we're in December football when defense and special teams are the defining parts of an NFL week. I'll just say that. Uh, and I, I will add a few things to your kicker thing. Will Lutz, who almost never misses, missed two, which you could argue was uh, kind of the defining factor in the Eagles upsetting the Saints. Parkey did Cody Parkey things and also missed a field goal and an extra point, which arguably turned the Browns-Ravens game. Uh, and the difference in that game, again, you know, the Ravens had Justin Tucker who drilled a 55 yarder game winner. If you don't have a good kicker, uh, when the games really matter, uh, you, you're, you're kind of shit out of luck. That just is what it is in the NFL these days. But uh, yeah, Ravens with Tucker reminds me of like the Packers with Rogers where you just know it's, right. it, you're fine. <laughs> they, they don't like fans don't really worry. They're like, Oh, a little less than two minutes and like 60 yards to go. It's okay. It's Aaron. Right. And again, yeah. I, on a night when it was really cold and people were slipping all over the field, traction was definitely an issue. And Tucker comes out to win, you know, what has been arguably the game of the year with a ton of lead changes and a bunch of points and tons of high drama. They were like, yeah, I don't know. I think he's probably going to make it right. I'm sure they were nervous, but not in the way that just about any other NFL fan base would be with their kicker out there. So um, the yeah. Ravens might be the only team that when they're, tied or down with a minute left you you think you don't think oh they left too much time for lamar you think oh they left too much time for justin tucker that's what <laughs> that's what you think because you yeah. don't need as many yards when you have justin tucker like a lot of teams it's like oh we got to get to the 30 you know it's like no you get to the 40 yeah like, 50 55 in he's pretty automatic one of the most accurate yeah. field goal kickers in nfl history so uh, i just think they get to worry a little bit less um so good for them um not a not a bonus that we have uh but it was interesting to see uh why don't we get into the shot of the week winner from week 13 a first for the bootleg pod we actually have a tie a tie two new yorkers sharing the award this year or this week we got jabril peppers who absolutely lit up 
Tyler Lockett on the boundary on a, a whole shot that Lockett did hang on to, by the way, but he sure paid for it. Jabril Peppers just just murdered him uh, coming full speed to the boundary. And then uh, Sam Darnold, believe it or not, uh, drilling Jeff Heath into the ground on the goal line. Jeff Heath did uh, get a concussion that game. I don't know if it was from that play specifically, but it wasn't even a dirty hit. Darnold just lowered his shoulder, and, and Heath got the worst of it. That's for damn sure. Um, but yeah. Uh, tribute to both Jabril Peppers and Sam Darnold this week. Uh, I've got my shot. I got a Michter's American Whiskey here, which I forgot to mention in the beginning. Uh, it's basically their same bourbon mash bill, but technically to be called a bourbon by law, it has to be aged in new oak barrels. These are bourbon-soaked oak barrels, so they have to call it American Whiskey, but uh, it's damn good stuff. It's basically bourbon, but just a little bit sweeter because it's aged in bourbon soap barrels. But that's what I got. EJ, what do you have for your shot again? Is it, is it midnight? Uh, Pendleton Midnight. And Pendleton uh, midnight. I don't know, a giant and a jet tying for anything? Is this, this feels like crossing the streams in Ghostbusters or something, <laughs> or combining matter and antimatter. Um, but no, great plays by both guys. Um, a lot of fun with last week's shot of the week. And here's to both of them. Cheers. Uh, yeah, so we'll have some more of those this week, but this is the game that everybody marked on the calendar when we started bootleg football way back in the summer. We had people saying, I can't wait until the Texans and Bears play. Little did they know how the Texans and Bears would do this year, but people have been talking (laughs) about this game, uh, and us talking about this game for months. So we couldn't, couldn't not talk about it. Um, as you know, I'm a Bears fan. And, and Brett is a Closet Bears fan. That is his NFC team. And, of course, he is primarily a Texans fan. So uh, you've got your two hosts opposed here. Their, their team's going at it. Um, we have the sub subtitle or subcategory, sub-story is what I want to call it, of Watson and Trubisky coming out of the same draft. Did you know that happened? I'd never heard that before this game. Wait, really? <laughs> oh, that's that's news to me. I know it's amazing. Yeah, somebody wow. uh, on my timeline. Did, said, did, wait, oh, did, did the Bears did the Bears pass on on I, on? I don't Deshaun know. Watson? Apparently, that's what I heard. But yeah. Anyways, oh no, I had oh. somebody that uh, on my timeline that said they just compared. You know, uh, Watson and Trubisky drink, and I was like, no, 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 <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> that's that's bad for your health. You'll die. Uh, that's they'll yeah. keep bringing it up, but. Um, I wanted to talk about what worked for the Bears. Bears ended up winning this game, which was certainly not a sure thing. Uh, Neither of these teams have done particularly well this year, Uh, certainly have not played up to expectations. And the Bears came out and had a game that looked, I think, about as close to the blueprint as Matt Nagy and Ryan Pace laid out as, as we've seen this year. Yeah. Like, this was their plan. Right, They wanted big holes for David Montgomery. We saw that early in the game. Certainly helped set the Bears up with an early lead. Huge rush from David Montgomery. Don't typically see that kind of space. But um, tell us about that Texans run defense, Brett. You know, what, what I'll say about the overall, you can call it pacing, you can call it game script, about whole, you know, the Bears getting on top of the run game and then pinning the ears back and all that kind of stuff. Beyond the fact that the Texans' defense is terrible, as I've said many times before, arguably the worst run defense in the history of this franchise, and that's saying a lot because we've had a lot of terrible run defenses. You want to talk about Reader being gone. You want to talk about McKinney being hurt. You want to talk about the DBs not being able to tackle. You're down to backup corners everywhere that also can't tackle. 
this run defense is bad, but the thing that I want to give Nagy credit for, as you said, is they're going off the blueprint that they've wanted to do all season, which is actually getting the outside zone run game to work because they don't have the horses inside to really make duo or inside zone work. Like you actually have to be able to move people to get that to happen. But with outside zone, it's really more about walling off and just kind of letting Monty, you know, work from hole to hole to hole and find his cutback lane Uh, on that big touchdown run. That was like what? 82, 83 yards, somewhere around there uh, in the first quarter. They, uh, Zach Cunningham actually tried to backdoor, uh, through the through the backside a gap and just kind of left a hole wide open in the front side. So again, it was kind of both things were like, yeah, the Texans run defense is bad, but the fact that they were able to secure blocks on the front side to open up the front side of that hole to begin with, like on outside zone, which I don't think they've run enough this year, like th- that was what we've been waiting for for 14 weeks. Is oh my god, they can actually run outside zone. They're actually, uh, you know throwing bootlegs off of that. Uh, they're they're hitting uh, slide routes with the tight ends off of that. Like, it almost looked like they were uh, the Texans' offense because the Texans do a lot of that stuff too, except the Bears just do it better in this game. They were managing Trubisky's reads where, again, it's a lot of half-field stuff with play action. There were some screens, not a whole lot of taking deep shots down the field because they didn't have to. Uh, you know, when you get man coverage looks with Allen Robinson in the slot, that was damn near automatic. He was destroying these DBs. Like, this was the best game that Matt Nagy has called in at least a year, which meant that it was the best game that Trubisky's played in a while, in my opinion, because he just he wasn't really put in any positions to make mistakes the run game got going like I get the Texans defense is awful we all know that but this was also a good performance by the Bears offense and that to me is at least encouraging yeah they finally did what they wanted to and they did it right uh there were very few things that we have been calling for all season for them to do that they did not do we called for them to play Cole Komet more than Jimmy Graham. They did that. We called for them to rely on Jimmy Graham from the 20 yard line and in towards the end zone. They did that. They got his patented little post-up corner move. That's the one thing he's still really good at. And they got a touchdown out of it. Uh, They started off throwing to Robinson early. They didn't wait until they were behind to do that. They made sure to move Trubisky, lots of rolling pockets, half field reads. And when they kept him in the pocket, they kept it to a very simple, and and he's even been able to blow this in the past, the very simple A or B sort of instant RPO, right? Read this mm-hmm. player and either let the ball go in the running back's gut or whip a slant usually to Robinson off that slot, right? So it's A or B, and it really depends on the one player that's in between uh, him and Robinson, right? What's he do? And watch that player and do the other thing. He's even managed to screw that up in the past. But if they kept him in the pocket, that's what he did. And he executed those very cleanly. There were uh, at least three or four of them. And he made the right call each time. And that's not been the case going into it. So everything kind of rolled together. The interior of the offensive line for Chicago has solided up a little bit. Sam Mustafer has played out of his mind, uh, a former undrafted free agent out of Notre Dame at the center spot, which allows Whitehair to be at guard, which is his more natural spot. Everything just kind of fell into place. Again, an early lead. The pass rush started to work. Pagano brought five and occasionally six guys, uh, and that was enough for the Bears to come out of it with a victory. Now, 
you've said it, Texans are junk on defense. There's almost no wide receivers left, and they don't have a great running threat to keep Chicago honest. So don't get too excited about this, Bears fans, but it doesn't mean it wasn't encouraging. Both things can be true. It can be an encouraging game where they stayed on game plan and executed the way they wanted to, and yes, they played a team that was undermanned and is not great on defense in the first place. So don't get too high or too low about this one. But Cole Komet also had a much better game. He led the tight ends in snaps. And uh, he also is a bootleg shot of the week nominee for taking a little screen and basically planting two Texans on his way to sort of being gang tackled like a water buffalo. But um, <laughs> it's more yeah. than we have seen out of him that way. And it wasn't his only play of note in the game. So nice to see them finally backing up all the talk about, oh, Cole Komet's amazing. We love Cole Komet. We're going to play him a bunch. We're going to feed him a bunch. Hasn't really happened up to this point. His snaps have been increasing steadily for the last three or four weeks. Uh, but this was really a different game for him, and I think really encouraging for all the Chicago fans who are like, well, we picked this guy fairly high up in the second round, and he's done uh, just about bubkiss. This was a game that let them see some of that potential moving forward with him as a sort of featured starting tight end. He's a big, big man. He's a huge and, uh, dude. He's like, huge. He, he moves like a much smaller dude. He's well over 260. Uh, yeah. And... You know, he's an imposing dude. Like, Trubisky's not a small guy. And when Cole Komet stands next to Trubisky after they were celebrating after that little run, like, Komet towers over Trubisky. He's a big, big dude. So, But that, I, that play really convinced me. Again, just kind of seeing he was nominated for, like, angry runs of the week on a Good Morning Football. And we'll, we'll throw a clip of that in the comments so people know what we're talking about. Again, it took three guys to get him down. And that play kind of convinced me that he can do uh, that little kind of shovel screen that the Chiefs run with Kelsey inside uh, where they where they just kind of shovel it to Kelsey and he just, they, it's a short yardage play for them, but that convinced me. It's like, oh, okay, he's he's a, a powerful enough runner with the ball in his hands just because he's so damn big. You can actually do that. I kind of want to see them integrate that in the red zone because even if he's not doing much else, if you could just get the ball in his hands when he's got a runway to get up to speed, He's so damn big, he's really hard to tackle. You know, Jimmy's obviously the post-up threat. I'm not saying you you take away Jimmy's uh, uh, receptions, but as kind of a change-up to that, if you're doing like 12 personnel or something like that, get they him in They actually motion. tried it earlier in the year. Did they? I don't yep, remember that. That, that exact work? play. Well, no. <laughs> That's why you don't uh, remember it is because Cole uh, didn't handle the... A, it wasn't a great little shovel pitch. And B, he didn't handle it very well, so he stuttered at the point. And the one thing you can't do on that play is stutter at all. It's got to no, be a bang no. bang play. Yeah. It's got to get in your hands, and you got to turn and push. And uh, the combination of it not being terribly accurate and him not handling it particularly well, he got stopped right where he basically touched it, um, sort of gummed yeah, up in the middle bummer. of the line. But they did try it, so they're you know great minds. They're thinking the same way you were. Uh, and now that he's a little bit more comfortable and the game looks like it's starting to slow down for him a little bit, um, I'd love to see him try it again. Overall for this game, I, 
this I still think Nagy's going to get fired. I still think Pace is going to get fired. Like they're not going to go to the playoffs. Oh, you'd be I, surprised. I, you haven't been listening to uh, <laughs> Chicago Talk Radio this week. Oh God, it's it would be a mistake to keep them. I'll just say that because they have a lot of talent on this team and they're doing nothing with it. But games like this, where you're playing against a vastly inferior opponent, and it pains me as a Texans fan to say that they are a vastly inferior opponent. But games like this show that Chicago still has a lot of talent and enough talent to out-talent another team that doesn't have it, even when the coaching staff isn't great. You know, you still have all those, you know, Pro Bowl caliber guys on defense. You still have Allen Robinson. Um, Offensive line's playing better. You know, Monty, when he has space, is a good running back. Like, Jimmy's a good red zone threat. Like, you have guys. You have lots of guys that are good players on this team. And you can out-talent the Texans. But what I don't want is for a team out-talenting the Texans to totally somehow erase the other 13 weeks of the season where even though they had all that talent, they weren't able to outcoach other teams. Like this is, this is the exception game, not the rule. And ultimately I do think we're going to kind of go back to normal bears football next week as we've come to know and hate and Nagy probably will be fired and pace will be fired. But this is a good reminder that talent is not the problem. There's still a lot of good players on this team you just need to get a new staff and have a good, solid draft to build depth. And Chicago can be right back in it again in 2021. Yeah. You know what I fantasize about based on that? Eric Bieniemy? Uh No, I just fantasize about this particular set of players under uh, a guy like Stefanski or Shanahan, oh, yeah. right? Guys that you know, Stefanski's got a boatload of talent. I would say even more talent than the Bears. The Browns are loaded after years of high drafts. Um, the Niners, not as much, uh, some of that. But, you know, Shanahan and his staff, tons of injuries. Didn't hear him whining. They're still out competing, trying to put points up. They're competitive. Um, they're still scaring people. They've lost tons of their top talent this year. They're without their starting quarterback, their best edge rusher, their all-world tight end. And, you know... They're still doing it. Can you imagine what they would do with this roster? Because, look, this roster is, you know, shorter on talent, say, on the offensive line than than a place like Cleveland, for sure. Um, But it's not bereft of talent, right? There are players here that, with good coaching and a great scheme, uh, you could see them doing more uh, than they're doing. And that's what I think about is, man, if you could unlock some of that, uh, this team would be somewhere in the middle as opposed to bouncing off the bottom, which is what it's been doing offensively all year. It's 31st or 30th in just about every offensive ranking. Um, So, yeah, interesting game. I wanted to call out Deshaun Watson's ability to, I call it being a magician every week on this show. It's that ability to navigate a crummy pocket. There was a perfect example, the one passing touchdown they did have this week um, to Kiki QT never would have happened. Uh, free rusher shows up in Deshaun Watson's face and he <laughs> dekes him to the ground with moves, never touches him, no stiff arm, nothing. Basically jukes him left, jukes him right. The defender's knees buckle, you know, basketball call, players call it breaking somebody's ankles. He basically breaks his ankles, rolls to the outside and then throws an easy score to QT. Um, that play doesn't happen pure and simple without Deshaun Watson's ability and that ability to avoid the rush in the pocket and then do something productive 
is the best in the NFL right now. There is no one else that does it on as consistent a basis as Deshaun. Um, and it's just such an amazing play extender for, especially for a team like the Texans that is going into many games, especially this season, sort of outgunned from a talent standpoint. I've, I've never seen a quarterback carry a team or at least carry a Texans team like this. Like it, I, I know Seahawks fans can relate because there were a few years where it was Russell Wilson versus the world. Uh, I know Colts fans can relate when it was Peyton Manning versus the world in the pre-luck years where the roster just kind of wasn't there other than a few key pieces, but the depth was awful. And then we saw when Peyton was out how bad that team really was. Deshaun's on the same plane right now of it's it's him and like Laramie Tunsil and a couple other guys versus the world. And they're not going to win a lot of games, but you can see how damn good Deshaun Watson is. And I promise you, you get him a good coaching staff. You get him some weapons. You build him a roster like Kevin Stefanski walked into in Cleveland, and that dude wins a Super Bowl. It's straight up. He's he's that good. Um, I just... It sucks as a Texans fan because I know, I know we're so far away from that. I just have to have faith eventually we're going to get there. I don't know when... But, you know, part of being a fan is just hoping that eventually well, we get to the, that point. The backdoor cover for you, Brett, is that he shoots his way out of town and the Bears pick him up. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Don't even. Don't even. Oh, it'd be so wonderful. I mean, Robert Mays. For you. Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> but, you know, by extension, you being a Closet Bears fan, you could have some enjoyment. It wouldn't be a complete and total loss. I'm trying to think of you here. Yeah, I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. Uh, why don't we move on to uh, Chiefs and Dolphins so I can put this miserable fucking game out of my mind. Uh, Chiefs and Dolphins, immensely more entertaining, by the way. I, I was I actually watched that game live instead of Texans-Bears because I couldn't bring myself to watch that one live. I just watched it on replay so I could do it in less than three hours. Plus, I was working on a video at the time on the on the Chiefs offense, so I felt like I, sh- I should have watched that game live. But it was I don't really regret my decision, to be honest. It was a great game. Uh, a little bit tighter in the end than maybe it should have been, but there were still a lot of big plays on both sides. Uh, I do want to kind of lead off with some stats that I was compiling going into this game because uh, I was kind of doing some research on how this Dolphins defense, which was ranked second in the league in points per game going into it, I was like, okay, how are they going to stop uh, the Kansas City offense, which was uh, somewhere in the top three in points per game? You know, it was a huge matchup. So I was, I was trying to see, okay, what does Miami do well? What does KC do well? How do they match up against each other? And going into the game, this is very interesting. All quarterbacks, all NFL quarterbacks that have faced the Dolphins uh, going against their man coverage, and this is including Josh Allen, who lit them up in week two. 89 of 163 for only 1,172 yards at 7.2 YPA, below average-ish. Nine touchdowns, five interceptions, 15 sacks against man coverage this year. If you take out Josh Allen, who had a ton of yards, 299, 12 and a half yards per attempt, four TDs, no picks, no sacks. If you take out Josh Allen, who's a demigod, all non-Allen quarterbacks, 873 yards only, 6.3 YPA, 5 TD, 5 interceptions, 15 sacks for the season. When Miami plays man coverage, particularly single high man, they were tearing people apart. However, 
Patrick Mahomes going into this game versus man coverage, meaning cover one, two man, zero, anything that's man coverage. 64.6% completions, uh, almost 1,200 yards, 1158, 9.1 yards per attempt, super efficient. Eight touchdowns, no picks, only four sacks. And he had almost as many attempts versus man as all quarterbacks combined versus Miami's man coverage. So he's really, really damn good against man. It's kind of his strength, and especially against zero. That reminds me of the old blitz him at your peril line. Blitz him. I mean, Baltimore tried it, failed miserably. Every team that's tried to blitz him or play one high coverages, meaning cover one, has failed miserably. So I went into this game saying, look, Miami, I know your temptation is to do, is to do what your strength is. I get it. It's got you to this point. Do not do that. Do not play zero. Do not play one high. If you're going to do it, you have to do it a certain way, which is realizing that uh, on like long yardage situations, Mahomes is going to retreat to 11 or 12 yards deep. He's going to set himself up and just back, 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 back and get away from pressure and throw it deep. That's kind of what he likes to do. So just stop the deep ball first in zero. If somebody's running free underneath uncovered, so be it. But just double Tyreek in zero, let somebody run free and Mahomes is inevitably going to try to throw it to Tyreek and you're going to get an incompletion. That ended up happening later in the game. But if you're going to risk man coverage, there's certain ways you have to do it. But most importantly, don't risk man coverage. Play too deep, play quarters, play cover two, keep everything in front of you, and then get the Chiefs into the red zone. Because once they're in the red zone, they're 23rd in the league in converting red zone opportunities to touchdowns. They are not a good red zone offense. Going into this game, they had seven straight red zone appearances without a touchdown. They're really bad at it. So if you can just keep everything in front of you, limit big plays, don't play man coverage, get them into the red zone, inevitably they'll stall out. That is the way to play. I was worried that Miami was not going to do that. And unfortunately, they they got bit by that a couple times by caving into their own tendencies. But what's interesting is that even when they did play too high sometimes, because they had an injury at safety to McCain multiple times in this game, they had a backup safety in that screwed up playing in too high, and they still gave up big plays. And that's the number one thing you can't do against KCs. Don't give up big plays. They had a decent game plan. They tried to get away from their tendencies, and it still bit them in the ass because of injuries. So I just want to say, overall, Chiefs, you do have some problems on offense. Miami, you do have some problems on defense. But you had a decent plan. If McCain didn't get injured, this game might have been a lot closer. Yeah, I think your points about don't give up the big plays, make them work for it, pack them into the red zone are really important for this year's version of Casey's offense because they work in space. They work Mm -hmm. really, really well in space when they can run wide receivers from one side of the formation to the other and they can retreat and they can do double reverses. We've seen that a bunch from them this year when Mahomes can drop back. 12 and 13 yards roll out to the side and everybody's, you know, four and five seconds scrambled down the field playing in deep space. Forget it. They're going to, they're going to destroy you. They are literally going to carpet bomb you off the planet. Uh, but when you pack them down, remove some of that space, let the boundaries be your extra defenders. They have more trouble this year. And that's going to be the way that folks are going to have to try and grind them into the mud because, Right now, trying to limit Casey is incredibly frustrating Yep. because you can have a great plan 
and you can do a great job against their top five weapons all day. And then number six and seven will beat you for a touchdown. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this week it was Miko Hardman, right? He blasts one in on a punt return of all things. Um, and it's, that's just, you know, it's so frustrating as a defense to have played, you know, again, a solid plan, very solid in your execution, in your individual assignments, keeping things in front of you. That level of discipline to maintain during a football game against a player like Pat Mahomes is very difficult to do. And one slip and literally the fifth or sixth options on offense, or in this case, special teams, end up sinking you for a touchdown. And if your offense isn't up to throwing up some points, you're going to have a very long day. So you have to play near perfectly uh, with a good plan, right? You have to play the percentages. And then you got to hope that those, you know, fifth and sixth players don't come to play that day. But uh, so far this year, it has carried them through. And, you know, people say, oh, just double Tyreek, double Kelsey. KC does an excellent job of making it so that you can't do that. One of their favorite things to do is they'll get into three by one sets and they'll have Kelsey as the isolated receiver in three by one, which if you're playing too deep against that, which again, I established, you kind of have to, like you have to play too deep because they'll put Tyreek in the slot. They'll try to get him matched up on like a linebacker or a slot corner and get an easy kind of, you know, like, especially if you're running like one high against that, it's crossing routes all day. He's going to burn you. So you kind of have to play too high so you can double Tyreek. But if you're doing that from too high and Kelsey's the isolated receiver in three by one, and uh, you put a note in here about this catch in the fourth quarter where he just kind of posted up on uh, Eric Rowe outside. Like, again, you have to give Kelsey the one by one and that uh, the, the one-on-one in that alignment. You just have to, like, because of how the offense is arranged somebody's gonna have to be the one-on-one in a three-by-one and the the number one receiver that's isolated is almost always going to be that guy so they force you to give kelsey that matchup which he's gonna win nine times out of ten because he's travis freaking kelsey he's one of the greatest tight ends to ever live yeah there was a stat that came up this week that blew me away and i sent it to you and it blew you away too travis kelsey is leading the league any position, regardless of position, in receiving. Travis Kelsey is the leading receiver in the NFL. That's nuts. Like, yes, he has an all-time quarterback, and yes, he is very good in his own right. We're going to talk about a tight end later on that plays for another team that is looking a whole lot better than he actually is because of his quarterback. That's not the case with Travis Kelsey. This is a, you know, this is a dual relationship between quarterback, an amazing quarterback, and an amazing receiver who happens to play tight end. But Travis Kelsey is literally three games away from leading the league in receiving as a tight end. That's that's insane. That's nuts. And I think he's going to do it. I think he's going to do it because, again... Totally possible because of exactly what you just described, right? Because of the positions the Chiefs put him in and, quite frankly, put the defense in to say, okay, balances out. What do you want to do? You want to leave Tyreek singled up? Mm, You probably don't based on results. So go ahead, leave Kelsey singled up. You pretty much have to. And they're just smiling either way, right? Yeah, they'll they'll put Watkins and Mecole and Tyreek all on the same side, 
and say, here's guys that run 4-4 or better. We know you have to put all of your, your passing strength on that side. We know you do. So here's Kelsey one-on-one all day, every day. And the thing is, his connection, like his mind meld with Pat, even on plays where he's not even designed to get the ball, there was a, a third down. They ended up not converting it. It was like third and 12, something like that. Um, but it was it was a great example. I can't remember exactly when in the game it was, but I charted it, where Kelsey was actually blocking. And he felt uh, the edge rusher disengage, and he was on the left side of the formation. He was pass blocking. He felt the edge rusher disengage and run to his left. And so he immediately knew Pat's rolling left from pressure. And so he, he immediately got off the block and then slipped downfield and looked for the ball because he knew Pat's going to run towards the boundary. And he didn't run towards the boundary. He, he kind of drifted towards the middle of the field, and he knew Pat's running from pressure to his left. I'm going to go to Pat's right. He's going to get me the ball. And that's just a rare thing to have a tight end that can feel an edge rusher getting off of a block and knowing where his quarterback is and knowing where his quarterback wants to get rid of the ball in a pressure situation. That's rare. That's so rare. He's so instinctual, so talented, obviously. And just he and Pat, uh, it's a connection unlike anything else in football right now. I, I can't believe how damn good they are. Except for maybe, and this is wildly unfair, the connection literally on the other side of the offense between him and Tyreek, because that's yeah. also <laughs> Vulcan mind meld level where you'll see them break routes deep downfield after the play is broken down. And it looks like they drew it up that way. And nobody draws up a play to take five and a half seconds. Like nobody does that, but they make that <laughs> connection look seamless time after time after time. And it's a testament to all three of those players. The fact that they're all in the same offense right now and playing at that level at the same time, regardless of guys that we regularly gush about, like CEH, like Hardman, uh, you know, there's a lot of other talent on that offense. I mean, they've got Le'Veon Bell, for God's sake. That's your, you know, your either your starter or your backup, depending on how you want to talk about it. Um, but that's just... That's a scary level of talent um, on a similar team. Yeah, and that and that's why their margin for error is so high. Because again, and Chiefs can Chiefs fans listening to this can back this up. I don't want you guys getting pissed about this because you know it's true. I've never seen the Chiefs play a mistake free game in this entire year. They they don't do it. They're incapable of playing a mistake free game. They're going to screw up at some point. They're going to stall at some point. They're going to have a drop. They're going to have penalties. They're going to take sacks. But their margin for error because of those explosive plays with Kelsey and Hill makes it so that those mistakes don't really matter. And we saw that early in the game. You got back-to-back interceptions. They're trying to a double screen that Van Ginkle kind of falls down. Van Ginkle, favorite of the pod because he just randomly makes plays every single week. This week was no exception. Randomly falls down, gets back up, tips the screen. They pick it off. Come back again on the next drive. Uh, they get backed up into a, a third and long situation because of a botched snap. So Mahomes takes a sack because of the botched snap on first down. They're in third and 12. What do they like to do in third and 12? Have Pat back way the hell up, you know, 12 yards deep and then throw it deep to Tyreek. Miami saw that coming. They showed zero, backed out of it. Pat's backing up, backing up, backing up. And you saw the Miami edge rushers set their aiming point for 12 yards deep, so he had nowhere to go. He couldn't step up. He left his offensive line out to dry. Tried to sprint like 30 yards backwards to get away from pressure. Took a sack. They had to punt on fourth and 42. Again, making mistakes. 
Very next drive, Pat's trying to throw it to, to Clyde on a check down, leaves it high, bounces off Clyde's hands, picks. It was the messiest start to a game they've had probably since uh, their playoff win over Houston where they were down 24 to nothing. But they scored 30 unanswered after that. Their margin for error after starting games slow is unlike anything I've ever seen because you get the rushing touchdown to Tyreek against a backup safety who totally misjudges his angle and gets burned. Uh, you get the the deep post touchdown to Tyreek also against a backup safety that was fresh in the game because McCain got injured for the second time. He steps up like four steps off a play fake and doesn't respect Tyreek's speed because he doesn't know better yet. Tyreek runs right on by him for like a 48-yard touchdown. You get the punt return to, to Meikle right after that. You get uh, you get the safety after Hardman fumbles. Again, they're, not, they're never going to play a mistake-free game. Hardman fumbles. Uh, Miami gets the ball inside the 10, then they immediately take a safety. You get 30 to nothing run after that kind of sloppy start, and nobody's surprised. That is Chiefs football. Yeah, they play so loose because of their ability to strike from anywhere that those kind of mistakes often sort of sink a team. They sink the, you can talk about momentum being real or not, but they sink the sort of mental fortitude of a team like, oh man, we had them, we were close, that was our touchdown, right? Chiefs don't care. They're going to score a touchdown on the next one. If they don't do that, they're going to score a touchdown on the one after that. So we spent a lot of time talking about the Chiefs, but the Dolphins played a decent game here. This was closer, uh, both because of some Chiefs mistakes, but also because the Dolphins are a pretty good team. And like you said, they came into it with a good plan. Um, Xavier Howard, we have to talk about Xavier Howard. We talked about him last week. We need to talk about about him again this week. A one-handed pick following the KC drive. We talked about those one-handed interceptions being a theme this week. He has a pick in five consecutive games. He's got to be in the defensive player of the year running. You just have to talk about Xavier Howard. He's not getting a ton of press. Nobody's saying his name. And that matters in things like the defensive player of the year voting. And he has shown up. He is as close to a lockdown corner, and I really don't believe there is any such thing in the league anymore with the with the rules the way they are. But Xavier Howard has been playing as well as any corner in football for a while now, and he is producing takeaways at a very regular rate that you don't see from even some of the top corners. Five weeks in a row with a pick, what is that, nine overall now? Does he have nine picks on the year, yeah. I think? It's Um, insane. He's playing exceptionally well. He's doing it every week. And if you ask people, you know, who are the top five corners in football or the top 10 corners in football, Xavier Howard either doesn't get mentioned or gets mentioned really late. And that's got to change. Like he's playing really, really high level football right now. I remember it was like a week, week and a half ago, I put out a tweet. Um, cause I was just kind of randomly looking at Asante Samuel stats, uh, Asante Samuel, one of the greatest ball Hawks at the cornerback position we've ever seen. And, uh, you saw in his kind of overall game logs in an 11 year career, Asante Samuel averaged an interception once every three games, which is insane. Like that is remarkably consistent production. And so I tweeted out, I was like, man, like for a corner, getting a pick once every three games over an 11-year period is incredible. Like, I I don't really know many guys that can kind of match that other than, like, Rod Woodson. And somebody uh, mentioned in the replies, I was like, well, Ed Reed had a pick once every 2.6 games, which makes sense. Ed Reed's one of the greatest ball hawks in the history of the sport. I was like, damn, that's pretty impressive. 
Over a five-year career, Xavier Howard has an even better interception rate than Ed Reed. Once every 2.5 games, that dude is getting an interception. That is mind-blowing, especially in a five-year sample size with a guy that started every game of his career except for one. Uh, he only, he only uh, I think it was in his rookie year that he didn't start one game in 2016, but then he immediately got the starting position. I mean, when he gets picks, it's picks in bunches. He often gets multiple interception games. Uh, and, and the one, as you mentioned, against Tyreek, all pro versus all pro, slot fade from one of the greatest quarterbacks, young quarterbacks we've ever seen, to one of the most dangerous receivers in the league, goes up, skies up, one hands that thing, channeling his inner Brent Grimes. I mean, this dude's a special, special player. And I mean, historically special in terms of his ability to generate turnovers. Yeah, nobody's talking about him, which is the piece that I'm just slaughtered by because it's not like folks aren't talking about the Dolphins. Like the Dolphins are not a bottom dwelling team. They they may have had that designation at the beginning of last year. And look, they haven't had a ton of success recently. But this year, with the addition of Tua, they've got a coach who is in the running for coach of the year. Um, you know, their front office staff is assembling a really talented roster. Their plan is working and they've mm-hmm. got a corner who is playing out of his mind and nobody's talking about him. Again, like you said, out of his mind at a historic level with guys that are in the Hall of Fame, right? Ed Reed's a Hall of Famer and you're bettering his interception rate. One of the most instinctive players in the NFL ever, period. Like listen to Bill Belichick gush about Ed Reed on the NFL Top 100. You'll realize like how special Ed Reed is. And Xavier Howard's got a better interception rate than that guy. Like, and nobody's talking about him. So no Xavier Howard's name. Uh, Football fans that understand and appreciate what's actually going on with him. Um, Very, very special stuff. Another guy I wanted to call out is Mike Gusecki. Two uh, two touchdowns on the day for the Miami tight end. Talked about him early in the season as one of the top young tight ends in the league. Um, Had a bit of a lull. He's really come on again in the past four games. Um, Just, that guy makes some incredible catches. I love him. I'm just going to profess my love for Gusecki right now. Such a talent. So fun to watch. People, you know, people come out of the woodwork. Twitter's great for this. And they're like, well, he's not that fast. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) I don't care. Did you see what he did on the football field on Sunday? Like, when it counted, right? He had a one-handed catch himself a couple weeks ago across the middle. That was ridiculous. Just stabbed it out of the air. Two touchdowns in this game against one of the best teams in football. Like, Mike Sicky is a great, great tight end. And um, I think he's going to play... He just seems like one of those guys that he's not a one-trick pony. He's able to do multiple things. Seems like he's going to be able to sustain the success. Uh, he's got Tua, who doesn't mind throwing to the middle of the field in the quick game. Like It feels like Mike Kosecki is poised to have a very, very productive run here of you know, a good two or three years where he just puts himself on the map and establishes himself. So keep eyes on Mike Kosecki. Um you know, Miami played a good game against Kansas City. They're not there yet, but almost nobody else is either. Yeah, and I I truly think if McCain didn't get hurt multiple times, 
because he, he kind of came out once and then came out again for something different. I, I, I can't remember exactly what it was. I think it was a foot injury or something like that. Um, you know, both of Tyreek's touchdowns were right after he left the field because he's one of the best free safeties in the league. Uh, and without those touchdowns and then, you know, the, the special teams mishap with Hardman, if they just was if they were just able to stay over the top and force the Chiefs to mount 10 play plus drives and go in the red zone and earn every single yard, if they just copied Denver's game plan and added a little bit more offense, they would have won that game. Will they get a rematch in the playoffs? Pretty decent chance they will. And if Gusecki comes back from injury in time for that game, because he hurt his shoulder and left the game in this one, um, if he comes back in time for that game, if McCain's healthy, if they have, uh, you know, Kyle Van Noy back and Landon Roberts back and they're playing at full strength, I think Miami can actually pull it off. If Yeah, we didn't even mention that, that Van Noy was absent. And yes. to the casual fan, that might not seem like the biggest loss because, look, Miami brought in, I, I think very purposefully, but a bunch of defensive free agents. We talked about it in our um AFC East, you know, sort of draft off-season recap about all the talent they brought in and the sort of various states of those guys. But Van Noy is literally the guy that calls their defense. So they go into playing Casey, or Casey comes in to play them specifically, and they are minus their defensive play caller, their leader, and they still push the Chiefs to a close finish. I'm with you. If they have their horses, that rematch is going to be lit. Yeah, I there's very few teams in the AFC that I think can actually give KC a game. Miami's one of them, Indy's one of them, uh, and then, well, Denver's not going to make the playoffs, but I would also say Buffalo's one of them too. The Steelers, I don't really think the Steelers match up that well against Kansas City, believe it or not, even though like their defense on paper is very, very good. I They don't they don't really have the DBs, I think, to handle them, and uh, I, I do think Pat in terms of how he navigates the pocket, I think can stay alive long enough to punish them. I mean, we just saw Buffalo light him up. And I think they do the exact same thing on offense. And Casey's defense is also underrated, and Pittsburgh's offense isn't that great. I think Pittsburgh is is not a great matchup against KC. But the other three teams, again, that I mentioned that play too high, and Flores, I think, can learn from this and play a little bit more too high as well in the rematch, they could definitely give KC a game. So, I think it's not a foregone conclusion that the Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl because there's a lot of AFC, AFC teams that match up decently well with them, and all of those teams are going to be in the playoffs. Uh, I, I think January is going to be a very, very surprising month in the AFC. So just you know, keep it tuned to, to those playoff games because I think they're going to be really, really entertaining. Uh, before we move on to our last featured game of the week, I do want to thank our sponsor today, Manscaped the best, most complete collection of products out of any men's grooming provider out there. Their world-famous line of lawnmower body trimmers have been the best trimmers on the market for a long time now, bar none. And their newest iteration, the Lawnmower 3.0, has only made them even better. It's fully waterproof, so you can use it in the shower. It has replaceable ceramic blades with their proprietary skin-safe technology to stop painful nicks and cuts. For the record, I've had these things for two years, and I have never cut myself, and I've used it literally dozens of times. It's got a really powerful 9,000 RPM motor as well to cut through even the thickest of hair. I use it weekly, and I'm also a big fan of their nose hair trimmer as well, the Weed Whacker. 
If you're not in need of any new trimmers right now, though, but you still want to up your grooming game or give the gift of a good smell to someone else this holiday season, Manscaped also offers a wide variety of excellent colognes, body washes, and deodorants that all smell fantastic and leave your skin and hair feeling amazing. I don't really know what their scent is called or even if it has a name, but they kind of have this signature scent that's shared across all their products that's just phenomenal. Highly recommend it. It's the best smelling thing in my shower. So if you're interested in either the Lawnmower 3.0 or the Weed Whacker or any of Manscaped's other great grooming products, head on over to manscaped.com and use promo code BOOTLEG for 20% off your order plus free shipping. Again, that is promo code BOOTLEG at manscaped.com for 20% off your order and free shipping. And with that being said, EJ, let's get to uh, maybe the best game of the entire week. And that's saying a lot because we had a lot of barn burners this week. Ravens, Browns, just complete insanity. Probably the game of the year. Uh, why don't I just kind of give you the floor and you can wax poetic about this thing? Yeah, I'm going to go up from game of the week and go to automatic game of the year candidate as soon as this thing ended and, and even probably right before uh, we knew that it was going to be that way. Tons of lead changes starting to be that. Look, this is a divisional game. It's a huge game between the Ravens and the Browns. Both teams doing well this year. It's kind of that two for one. You beat a divisional opponent. It's not just worth one win. It's almost worth a win and a half or two wins. Um, the weather was there, right? They're playing in Cleveland right off the lake. It's really cold. Field conditions are uh, well manicured, but really slippery. We see a bunch of the Ravens falling uh, all through the first half. Cleat selection, not quite what it probably should have been. Um, and it just ramps up from there, right? We, we end up having sort of skirmishes in the beginning. Uh, nobody's even talking about some of the things that happened in this game. We had a guy run into the goalpost on the Hail Mary at the end of the first half. When was the last time you saw a guy run full speed into a goalpost? Yeah. Um, it reminds me of the, you know, football on the street, except watch that tree down on the left after the park car. Oh, <laughs> you didn't. Okay. Yeah. You didn't know the tree was there. Okay. So, you know, rushing touchdown record, they tied it. Nine rushing touchdowns in this game. Nobody's even talking about that because of all the other things that went on in this game and the way that it ended. Just a classic matchup. Stefanski's Browns. We have to remember that the first time they met the Ravens, the Ravens wiped them off the field, right? The Browns mm -hmm. were not up to speed yet. Um, Stefanski hadn't figured out exactly what he had yet, quite frankly. Uh, but all the pieces, all the pistons weren't firing together. So this is a completely different effort. And to all the people that say, oh, same old Browns, they lost the game. I say baloney. They took one of the best teams in the NFL. They scored 42 points, pushed them to the very end, answered every shot they had. And if anything, simply ran out of time or didn't have the better kicker. And that to me says they're as ready as they're going to be. And Stefanski has the Browns in a position of prominence and again, maximizing all that talent that's on the roster. And we got to see a lot of it last night. We got to see the defensive talent. We got to see Baker playing in a game plan that really suited his strengths. We talked about that with Trubisky earlier. Stefanski did it with, with Baker in this game as well. We got to see that offensive line pounding open holes, all three, uh, of the Browns running backs had significant contributions, um, great contributions from the Ravens running backs as well. If you're a running back freak like I am, this was straight up football porn. This was amazing football to watch. Nine rushing touchdowns was just overload. 
Um, First time since you know. 1922. Yeah, I know. And that's <laughs> 100 you know, years. They've, they've played a lot of football since then. And yeah. the fact that that's the case, that it goes back that far, is a thing. Uh, a starting quarterback leaving for mysterious reasons and being replaced by a guy who, quite frankly, just isn't as good. Sorry, Trace McSorley. And, and definitely I'm not, you know, at all excited that he got injured and placed on IR. But you know, drama. You want to talk about it. Game's on the line, and the starting quarterback has to disappear and go to the locker room, and he's replaced by Trace McSorley, who tries his best, but certainly isn't Lamar Jackson. That was pretty obvious, um, you know, to the surprise of no one. And then, bum, 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 hero turn. Lamar Jackson returns just in time to save the day. This game had everything, and I mean everything it was incredibly entertaining as a football fan as a football analyst as a guy that appreciates matchups and game planning all of that stuff was involved individual performances great effort it was just all there it was a fantastic football game right after this game finished or it might have been right before it finished i tweeted out like this this game is so crazy that i have to change my film room topic for the week and do something on this game. I didn't even know what yet, but I was like, I, I gotta, I gotta talk about it in some way. So I put off the KC offense video. Cause that one's kind of evergreen. I could do that anytime. And I wanted to talk about this game. And when I was watching it today, I was trying to, you know, pick up on something that I could um, use as like a teaching moment for the channel. And so I, I zeroed in on the Ravens run game because this was their second straight game, their fourth of the year with 200 plus rushing yards. So I wanted to talk about how they made that happen because they they put up 45 points predominantly because of that run game. And beyond the narrative of this game, all the great storylines, all the crazy plays, all that kind of stuff, this was a great coaching clinic by Greg Roman, the offensive coordinator of Baltimore. He gets a lot of flack, including from me, for how he designs pass games. I don't really like how he does it. It's a lot of mesh. It's a lot of smash. It's a lot of basic stuff that not really a whole lot of creativity in the pass game. But unbelievable amounts of creativity in the run game. And the main staple that he's kind of leaned on this year in what I call gotta have it plays, like you, you need yards, you need to convert, you need a touchdown, you gotta have it is a play called QB Counter Bash. In his uh, playbook, Ted Nguyen, uh, our buddy from The Athletic, uh, did a great piece about it. It's called either 16 or 17 Flow, but most people refer to it as QB Counter Bash. And what bash means is back away, uh, as in like away from the running back. You are pulling two blockers, usually the backside tackle and guard, away from the direction of the handoff to the running back. So it's like it's like you're running... Uh, you know, power extra, but in reverse. The running back is going the opposite way of the pulling linebackers or of the pulling blockers. And the pulling blockers are actually pulling for the quarterback. That is the QB counter part of the call. And it looks like an option play, but it's actually not. And the read is kind of predetermined. Roman is just very good at knowing which variation of it to call and when to kind of punish edge rushers. And they leave the defensive ends unblocked, by the way. And since it's not an option play, if the defensive end guessed correctly, it's pretty much guaranteed going to get blown up. So either they go inside and they follow the pulling blockers and they take Lamar or they go outside and they try to take the sweep from the running back. They kind of have to choose one or the other. And then if they guess right, again, as I said, it's pretty much a guaranteed tackle for loss. If they guess wrong, it leaves a wide open lane. 
And so they called variations of this play five different times. The first was Lamar's rushing TD from the five-yard line. You can go on Twitter, look at the highlights. You can kind of see the video so you, you can get an understanding of the, of the play structure that I'm talking about. Uh, his rushing touchdown from the five-yard line. The second was in the second quarter on a third and three. Again, like I said, they call it in gotta-have-it situations, like on third downs. Lamar broke that one for a huge gain because the end, which I think was Miles Garrett, uh, he shot way upfield to take the running back on the sweep. The linebackers followed the pullers, so there was nobody there in, in the backside lane. There was a huge alley, and instead of just following the pull, Lamar just took it right upfield, got a massive run out of it. Uh, they called it again, ironically enough, on the play that McSorley tore his ACL. Uh, that was also a bash call in a gotta-have-it situation on third and two, less than three minutes left. Except this time, Miles Garrett did not shoot upfield to take the running back because he recognized the formation. He stayed home and crashed in on McSorley. And again, like I said, it's not an option play. He doesn't have the option to just give it if Miles Garrett uh, takes him. So he tried to make a move to make something out of nothing when Garrett guessed correctly. He had him dead to rights and he sprained his knee on that slippery turf while trying to make Garrett miss, which he wasn't going to do anyway. Lamar might have. He definitely would not have. And then the final time they ran it was two plays after McSorley tore his knee on Bash. It was uh, the two-point try with Dobbins after Lamar threw the touchdown to Hollywood. And this time, again, it was two plays later, Roman knew that Garrett was going to play the quarterback on Bash. So he just called the sweep off of it to Dobbins, who was going to be totally uncontested. He outflanked the defense because Garrett was not responsible for him. Met Sandejo at the goal line, ran him over. Sandejo actually got concussed on the play. Uh, again, don't tackle with your head, kids. <laughs> That's why you don't do that, because Dobbins is 220 pounds and will make you pay for it. Just a brilliant adjustment by Greg Roman to realize the defensive ends were changing how they played the bash call mid-game. And then he had a brilliant play call to counter that. Uh, just an amazing, amazing call by him. Again, he's not very imaginative when it comes to the passing portion, but... He understands play call sequencing and the run game better than anyone else in the league, and I don't think it's particular, uh, excuse me, particularly close. Uh, again, because of that run element, because of all the success they've had on QB counter bash this year, which is kind of their their signature play, this offense can still score on anyone. I firmly believe that. Yeah, I can't disagree in terms of Roman being uh, a savant in the run game in many ways, and it's not necessarily because of what he calls, it's when he calls it and how he calls it. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the sequence in which he calls it, which is so, so important as you see those adjustments. We talk about the best coaches are the ones who make second half adjustments, who see how things are changing and are a step ahead of that, or, you know, ideally two or three steps ahead of that. And Roman in the run game is that way. I'm with you. His pass game uh, is somewhat limited. And when guys like Mark Andrews don't have a great game, Greg Roman's game plans look pretty flat. Um, yeah. But when, you know, Andrews comes through and makes those sort of clutch catches when the run game is stalled, um, the whole thing starts to click. And obviously, with all the points they put up last night and all the rushing touchdowns, it was working. On the other side, this is as good as we have seen Baker in terms of his ability to answer, to hit back, to do the right thing, to make the right choice, um, and quite frankly, to execute. We saw some really good physical skills from Baker Mayfield last night. He threw a dart that I tweeted about to Njoku uh, between two defenders that was 
an absolute rocket and couldn't have been more on target, slightly out front of the numbers, but it was a cradle catch by Njoku in between two defenders in the middle of the field. Just a rip. Um, That ball to DPJ was great, too. The deep one. He threw two to DPJ that were... Uh, I, you said gotta have it plays and that rang in my ears. Um, they needed those chunk plays. Uh, they had it, obviously the Russian game was supporting them very well, but occasionally when you're talking about a 40 point game, you've got to put up passing plays that count in the right spots. And Baker was able to do that. My favorite thing about it was he was able to counter punch, right? He never went in the tank. He didn't make the big mistake at the end of the game or in the third quarter that gave the Ravens an extra, you know, couple of possessions and really sunk the cause for the Browns. He had them right there at the end. It took a last second Justin Tucker field goal that was pretty long, mind you, to win this game. That is not something we've seen from Baker. He is starting to put it together. He is starting to trust and play within this offense that Stefanski has designed instead of outside of it. And that is a very, very good development for Cleveland and Browns fans that Baker is your puncher's chance. He is the guy that can keep you in it to the end and put up a ton of plays, can utilize all the talent on that offense. And, you know, remember, we've got, you know, no OBJ in this game. Um, they're not they don't have all their weapons no hooper uh, yeah this is not a full steam browns team and they still put up 42 and push the ravens right to the end of the game um lost on a last second long field goal i know there are no such thing as fear of victories and stavansky came out and said that today and that's the right thing to say look we're not in this for moral victories we're in this for actual victories that is the correct thing to say and someone aptly noted on twitter that that is not what stavansky's predecessors would have said and that's why they're his predecessors yeah yeah so there's a lot of good things if you're a Cleveland Browns fan. I know it hurts. They showed pictures of Cleveland fans. Look, long-suffering Cleveland fans, I think, is a fair adjective. Crying in the stands after this game, so disappointed. Really thought they had it. Played an amazing game. And the answer is they did, and they've got more in the tank. Again, this was not the Browns at full strength, but they played up to their potential. This was in no way an easy game from the Ravens and any one play could have turned it. That is the razor's edge. That is the NFL. You know what? One play could have turned it. Now that you mentioned that when it's fourth and five, and this was the Hollywood (laughs) touchdown, don't play fucking zero. How many times do we have to say this? If you're in the lead and it's a fourth and five and they have to drive the field and get points, don't play zero. Like, don't give it all up in one bite. Make them drive the field. It's unbelievable. Like, that's how Hollywood scored, is they called mesh against a zero blitz. Uh, they, they, they brought, I think it was their linebacker or safety. I can't remember who came inside. Lamar rolled out to the right. He bought time. Uh, and mesh, if you don't know, it's a, it's a rub concept, which is great against man coverage. Terrence Mitchell got rubbed off of Hollywood, who leaked deep. There's no safety there because it's zero, because they called that for some reason. Lamar let it fly. Hollywood ran unopposed 44 yards for the score. 
The only reason I could think why they would even want to call that is because it was only a one-point lead. The two-minute warning just happened. Maybe they were afraid of Baltimore actually like converting with like a six-yard gain or something like that and then just killing clock until Tucker kicked the field goal anyway. Like Maybe they were worried about that. But if you are worried about that, again, just... Do you have to call zero? Like, do you have to call a man coverage when all game long on third in in like third down situations, third and medium, you were showing man all day long? Like they already beat you on mesh earlier in the game on a third and five or third and six, if I remember correctly, because that's what the Browns do. They play man coverage on third down. Like if there's ever a time to break tendency and show man and then like hit him with a trap zone, like, like you know, uh, they call it a cougar call. Uh, where like you're, you're trapping, uh, how do I explain this? Anyway, it's like a cover, it's a variation of cover two. Like that would have been the time to call that, like show man, uh, and then have your corners get into phase like it's man and then drop into zone. Like that's the time to call that. You don't call zero because then you're giving up a touchdown. Like it's, it's Hollywood Brown. He's runs four, two. He can't catch the ball, but the one time he does, you're not going to catch him. I don't know. I was going to say in the Browns defense before this point, Hollywood Brown had dropped literally everything. He had three drops on the night. He couldn't catch a cold on a cold night on the lakefront. And, of course, he catches the lob, you know, over zero and streaks in for a 30-yard touchdown because in this particular game, why wouldn't he? This is how the script writers write it up, right? You wouldn't have that drama if he had dropped that ball on the turf like he did the previous three. So, uh, you know, I get the gamble, but I'm with you. I wouldn't have called it. I just, when you're showing man coverage in those situations all game long, you can pretty much bet they're going to dial up mesh because that's what they do. That is their answer to man coverage. That's literally what they've shown all season long. If there was ever a time to do a tendency breaker and call zone, that was it. I feel like Joe Woods misplayed that one. I get why he did it because they only had a one point lead. He was throwing everything on the table and saying, we want to end the game right here and now. I get why but I heavily disagree with it. And as you said a few minutes ago, one play changes a game like that. And that was the one play. Yeah, it was a razor-thin margin. Um, one note, uh, now that McSorley got hurt, Tyler Huntley, favorite of the pod, uh, drafted this year, quarterback out of Utah. We really liked his skills. We likened him uh, to a backup to somebody like Lamar. We thought, well, that would be a good place for him to end up. Uh, he ends up there. He's on the roster. He is now the backup quarterback of the Ravens. Look, we want to see Lamar play all he can because he's a superstar. And the Ravens, as we just said, are not the same without him. But if Tyler Huntley ends up getting a few snaps at the end of this year, I would not be sad because I think he has a very interesting skill set. He was my guy from the later quarterback roster ranks, guys that were going to either be drafted late or go undrafted. Um Quite frankly, the reason Tyler Huntley went undrafted is his throwing motion is, uh, according to evaluators, atrocious. He looks really gross throwing the football. But if you put that out of your mind and look at what he does, where he places the football and what the results are, um, they're amazingly pretty. Uh, but people couldn't really get by that throwing motion. Um He's a very athletic backup, so it'll be really interesting to see if Tyler Huntley gets a few snaps, but that's just an interesting bootleg note if you listen to all those draft prep uh, podcasts we did and then, the, uh, of course, the AFC North wrap-up. Uh, we definitely mentioned Tyler Huntley because he is a guy 
that we both believe in, uh, and he's in a good system. Uh, again, we don't want to have to see him play. We'd rather see Lamar Jackson be healthy. Uh, but Tyler Huntley, interesting guy, and is now the primary backup since McSorley was placed on IR today. If I remember correctly, he had a higher passer rating under pressure than Joe Burrow last year in college. Yes, he did. Which is insane. He had some very sneaky stats. Yeah. If you're an analytics guy, Tyler Huntley was definitely a guy that you were paying attention to. Again, in the later rounds, we're not saying he should have been drafted ahead of Joe Burrow or anything silly like that. We're saying as a guy that you can basically get, quote unquote, for free in terms of draft capital, that is a very late round draft pick or as a UDFA, an undrafted free agent, Tyler Huntley is a guy that we had tabbed as, hmm, has promise, right? Has some really good results, um, but definitely has a bit of a funky throwing motion. And you'd be surprised the weight that carries with certain evaluators. Uh, the quote-unquote old argument of doesn't look like a quarterback. Um, I think Huntley, again, with some good pro coaching, uh, has certainly enough traits to deliver in a backup quarterback role again i'm not penciling him as a starter anywhere but one of those guys with talent that's worth investing in yeah he's he's got some uh young tyrod to him i say athletically but also like potential as a passer totally agree like he's he's that and you know tyrod i started in baltimore same kind of thing and and he developed into a capable starter in a few different places and he's gonna play like Tyrod's the kind of guy that's going to play forever as like that veteran journeyman backup that can also you know come into a game and uh, and and give you a few good starts and I think Tyler Huntley can be exactly that if not better because of his physical skills and I I wish him the best I think uh, I don't think Baltimore lost anything here at the backup quarterback position I think they'll be just fine with Huntley if uh, if Lamar goes out so anyway why don't we uh, wrap up this game because we've been talking about it forever. And hit fourth and long because we got a whole bunch of other games to talk about. Uh, why don't we start with Broncos Panthers, where uh, favorite of the pod KJ Hamler, who we talked about incessantly over and over and over again in the pre-draft process, kind of had his breakout day, flashing that four-two speed. He had a really pretty touchdown deep from Drew Locke, uh, where the Panthers blew what's called a jump call. The free safety jumped a crossing route. Backside corner didn't get there in time to replace. Not that it's easy to replace on a guy that runs 4-2 anyway. Locke put it out in front. Great touchdown from KJ. Uh, he really showed off that explosiveness. And I think uh, he's he's certainly cementing himself as uh, a key cog in that offense for next year. Once they get Cortland Sutton back and Judy's there as the number two, I think they're probably going to run 11 personnel on damn near every play because I can't really justify keeping KJ Hamler off the field. Yeah, Hamler is one of those guys that's starting to get his opportunities late, uh, didn't really shine, had a few highlight plays in the early part of the season, but now here in the later part of the season, starting to show up more often. Uh, this was a two-score day for him. That's obviously going to get some people's attention. Uh, but just imagine if like Marquise Brown was your third and slot receiver. That's KJ Hamler in mm -hmm. Denver. He's He can grow into that kind of role. Um, and I would say he's slightly more competitive with the ball in his hands. Also, KJ's better than Marquise, just saying. Yeah, <laughs> I think he's you know more competitive with the ball in his hands after the catch uh, than Hollywood is. So um, the other things of note in this game, Jeremy Chin with a bootleg shot of the week nominee, a huge sack fumble shot on Drew Locke, 627 in the second quarter if you want to look it up. Chin hit him as hard as any safeties hit a quarterback in a few weeks. 
um, absolutely knocked Drew on his back, and he laid there for a while and just thought, I'm going to let that one wear off a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Panthers ended up returning the fumble. Uh, yeah, Chin is a big guy that moves very, very quickly. Uh, if you're a fan of the pod, you are familiar with his exploits. He nailed Drew right in the chest, straight up, and that is not something Drew's going to forget anytime soon. Uh, other notes, Joe Brady, who's had a very good early season. I think defensive coordinators are getting a little bit of tape on him. And the Panthers are struggling in the red zone. Teddy had a really efficient day, uh, really nice passing numbers, made the right choice. Again, isn't going to stretch the field vertically a ton, um, but had some really good mid-level shots that, again, were on time and on target, allowed the Panthers offense to move. But when the Panthers get in the red zone, they are not scoring with regularity. They're having to rely on the kicker more than you'd like. Uh, and that's something that Joe Brady's going to have to kind of break through. He's going to have to sort of see where that glass ceiling exists for his offense and figure out a way past it. Uh, and until they do, they're going to be an easier out than they would be uh, if he gets a little bit more creative again when the field compresses. And look, he's not the only offensive coordinator to struggle with that. No, I He's not, but I'm I'm kind of looking forward to uh, 2021 with both of these teams at this point because both of them are out of it. But they both have a lot of young talent that I really, really like. I want to see both of their coaching staffs return because I think both of them, in Denver's case, I think they kind of got really screwed over with injuries this year. I mean, Drew Locke also, you know, was injured with a shoulder injury for a good part of the early part of this season. Not that, like, I'm a big Locke guy at the moment, but I at least want to see what he can do next year because he's still going to be on the team. I at least want to see what he can do next year with Cortland, uh, with even more O-line depth, uh, with a defense that isn't completely just decimated by injury. Like, and the Panthers also, again, very, very young team. Lots of young talent. Jeremy Chin included who you just mentioned and I I do want to talk a little bit about Chin as well specifically because I want to compare him to somebody else who I think we both regard as an all pro type safety in a very similar role and Chin has almost identical stats so they both have 74 solo tackles Uh, Jeremy Chin has 25 stops meaning uh, stopping uh, like a, a first down run within like three yards basically uh, or on a goal line, it's stopping it for no gain. Like though, like that's what PFF considers stops is stuff that prevents an offense from getting at least forty percent of the total to a first down. So it kind of depends on the down and distance, but it's a key stat. Uh, so Jeremy Chin has twenty five of those, and uh, the guy I'm comparing him to has twenty nine. So pretty similar. Jeremy Chin has two forced fumbles. Safety B has one. He's got one interception. Safety B has two. In terms of pass breakups, Chin has five. Safety B also has two. So stats are virtually identical. He's a little bit behind in some areas, a little bit ahead in some areas. You know who Safety B is? No. Buda Baker. (laughs) They are damn near the same. A fellow agent of chaos. And he's got more pressures. He's got one fewer sack. But he's got more quarterback hits and more hurries. Yeah. It's the same guy. Yeah, very similar, except much larger. And uh, I would say a tick faster as well. And that's not just because DK caught him. 
like Chin is a physical marvel, always has been. That was a big part of his allure coming out of a, a lower conference uh, getting drafted last year was, look, he's fully 220 pounds, uh, well over six foot tall, and brings it, like is not afraid to be physical at that size. Um, and the Panthers have done a nice job of moving it around, giving them those opportunities, you know, playing close to the line, playing him deep. That's the thing. If you're going to have, you know, uh, pass breakups and interceptions and sacks, they're going to have to move you around and play you in different alignments. And they've done that. And Chin has adapted uh, certainly more quickly than I thought he might and has brought sort of all those skills uh, on display more often um, and more quickly than I thought he would when he got drafted. Um, but all the sort of initial returns from this, his rookie season, look really solid. He has played above expectation, and I would say the arrow is pointing way up for Jeremy Chin. Yeah, he's just tremendous, tremendous young player. Uh, want to move on to Titans-Jags here, and the first note you put down is the big three of Tannehill, Derrick Henry, and A.J. Brown can go toe-to-toe with just about any other triplets in the league. I 100% agree. And if you don't believe me, look at A.J. Brown's one-handed touchdown, which was just a freak-of-nature type play. Uh, Very few receivers can do that. I think it's Brown that's really brought this uh, comparison into the spotlight, right? Tannehill played at a very efficient and high level at the end of last year, and, and people started to come around to his game Uh, with Arthur Smith's offense in Tennessee and how he could complement the power running game with Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry, I think, was known, but again, has improved and has increased the number of things he can do even this year. And the Titans are really waiting for the emergence of a wide receiver. Brown flashed a little bit last year. Corey Davis, again, hadn't hit the heights that he hit this year again in the same offense. And Brown's ascension this year to be compared as some of the top compared with some of the top wide receivers in the league is really the thing that's elevated this particular trio uh into that conversation that says hey give me any three off your team and i you know arsons are better than yoursons and vice versa right we can stack our three up against your three and go anytime and tennessee with those three has a really strong hand in just about any game they go into. If they go into a game and those three guys are healthy and functioning at a high level, that sort of top end of talent, if you're talking about Jimmy's and Joe's versus X's and O's, like, again, our talent versus your talent, our ability to make plays in key situations versus your ability to make plays in key situations, those three, from a physical and production standpoint, are as good as any three in the league. And... especially AJ and and Henry, like they give you a kind of a a bigger margin for error for Tannehill because he can just get it to them in space and they're going to break tackles. It's got to be a remarkably... I was going to say, funny you use the word bigger. Yes, (laughs) yes. Because they're both massive at their position. They're huge. They're both really large guys. But it's got to be a comforting feeling for Tannehill to know like he doesn't have to you know, stretch the field with AJ for him to rip off a big gain. Like it can be a slide route off play action and he can get 30 yards out of it. Uh, you know, it, it's got to be nice to know like, hey, I can throw a throwback screen to Derrick Henry and he's going to get a 90 yard touchdown out of it. Like I don't have to make every single throw. Like I could just give him the ball quickly and they're going to go do something with it. 
you know, Corey Davis has been, weirdly enough, a, a better downfield threat for them than I think AJ. AJ's really at home in the short and intermediate where you can just get him the ball and just let him go run. He's one of the best yak threats in the entire league. Uh, and so it's it's just a it's a it's a comfort zone for Tannehill to have just these big bruising monsters of human beings that uh, that give him a bigger margin for error about that. Um, now, in regards to Jacksonville, I think we know their their defense is pretty bad. Uh, I don't think anybody's really questioning that. But Gardner Minshew has been kind of given the keys again. <sighs> And I'm not really sure how to feel about it. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yes, I do have a feeling about this. I have a strong feeling. And this has a lot to do with, we talked about staffs earlier, right? Coaching staffs and, and which ones are, we've talked about it all year. The ones that do okay with the talent they have, like perform at the level you'd expect, get the results you'd expect. The ones, particularly like Matt Nagy, that are not developing talent at that level or producing results that we think are equal to the talent that's on that team. And then those that are maximizing their talent that are getting the most out of it, the Brian Dables, right in, in Buffalo, a ton of talent on that team, but he is using it at the top level and they are clicking on all cylinders. And as you said, they're a threat to knock off the chiefs because of it. It's not just Josh Allen. It's the roster and the fact that they're being utilized the right way. Now, I don't think that of Doug Marone, right, and his staff in general. I don't think that they are using their talent uh, as well as they could. They're getting good results out of certain players. That's not the case. But as a team, I really don't understand how Jacksonville thought Minshew did not give this team the best chance to win, right? If you're bringing in uh, Jake Luton, who I like as a developmental player, again, we talked about a Tyler Huntley, right? I think he's a good backup candidate i think he throws a nice ball i think he can come in and give you some solid downs uh in relief but i don't think he's a starter certainly not at this level and um you know handing the keys to the ginger giraffe in the meantime was never going to be an answer and now sort of sort of limping back to Minshew and saying okay well we were wrong go ahead and do what you do and you showed it he, he showed it when he came back into the game this week Right. All of a sudden they had a spark. All of a sudden he made some of those plays that probably shouldn't have been made. Minshew's great at that, operating sort of in between A and B and, and coming up with something, creating something. Minshew is far better than the other two guys at that. And I don't really ever get why Jacksonville said, you know, I think we have a much better chance if we go with one of these other two guys than this guy that is creative and overachieving but does that fairly consistently right it does that put you at a top level in quarterbacking no but there's a lot of teams there and you're not going to get there you know great quarterbacks don't morph out of the sky they come after you have a terribly crappy season and can draft high which unless that was their intent uh to not make themselves as competitive i don't understand why they put Minshew on the bench <sighs> I don't really understand why they put him on the bench, but at the same time, I also know that he's not the future. If that, and that's why I'm kind of torn. Yeah, on he's this. absolutely not. But neither are the other guys on that roster, right? The other two are not some shining developmental prospects that like might keep them from drafting a quarterback high. So again, unless their yeah. intent was to keep that draft position intact. 
and Minshew was a little too effective for their taste, which is not the way that coaches and players think. That's the way GMs think. I have never talked to a player who's like, I actually kind of want to lose a game. Like the players and the coaches, uh, quite frankly, their livelihood depends on how well they do. So I've never met one of them. They're like, oh yeah, we're going to throw it in the, we're going to throw it in the bin for, for a potential draft pick. They don't care. They're in the league now. They're making money now. Um, so I just don't think that that makes sense as a coaching decision. And based on that, I don't see any rationale for putting Minshew on the bench, given what the Jags have, you know, in the barn at quarterback. Yeah, yeah, I can agree with that. I just, it maybe if it wasn't Mike Glennon that he was benched for, <laughs> I'd be like, okay, well, you know, maybe they're just trying to, but I, you know, we already know what Mike Glennon is. Uh-huh. But I also think we know what Gardner Minshew is at this point, which is a backup. Yeah, we do. And but I would <sighs> rather play Minshew than Glennon any day of the week because I, he's going to make a couple I don't plays. disagree. He is a gamer, and he's pretty savvy. And Glennon isn't. I just think it's. I almost feel like this sense of futility with the Jaguars at this totally. point where I just want to fast forward to the draft. Yep. You know? And I'm sure their fans feel the same way. They're like, whatever, give string. us Justin Fields. Like, yeah. You know, but it's more entertaining I, football. I, if you're trying to put butts in seats or keep people interested, Minshew is far more entertaining than the other two guys as well. well I, I That I agree. I would rather watch at least him lose than Glennon yeah. lose. At least he's entertaining. For sure. You know, I'll give you that. But why don't we move on to Cardinals-Giants, which was a result that personally I didn't expect because the Cardinals had an injured quarterback in Kyler Murray who's clearly been struggling with a shoulder injury. Uh, their defense has been a little bit shaky in spots as they've taken on some injuries. They, you know, they lost three straight. They went from six and three to six and six. The Giants were on a roll. Their defense had been coming together. Oh, right. By the way, Daniel Jones was back and fumbled a bunch and got sacked five times. Ah, okay. <laughs> These are the Giants we know and love. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. the Giants we know and love. And unfortunately for Giants fans, they got a little. You know, spark of hope. We talked about the Giants. We gave a mea culpa to Dave Gettleman and his plan for assembling talent. Uh, they had beaten the Seahawks, and rightfully so, the week before. And they come in again against a sort of limping Cardinals team, lacking a bit of identity. And you think, perfect chance for the Giants to rack up another win here. Doesn't really happen. Not when your quarterback is Daniel Jones. <laughs> Hassan Reddick is really the reason this happened. <laughs> Hassan Reddick plays out of his mind, uh, comes up with five sacks, a couple of forced fumbles. As we talked about, Daniel Jones is the master of the quarterback turnover. The New York Giants gave up sacks in bunches. They just didn't give them up to Reddick. You know, was not their finest hour. But the Cardinals, you know, uh, contributed as well on their side. Uh, Kenyon Drake, fumbling like crazy, gave up a couple of fumbles in this game. Cardinals got both of them back, but uh, he committed those fumbles. And just wanted to give a shout-out to Dan Arnold uh, at tight end. Doesn't play a ton for the Cardinals, but is making the most of his opportunities and really has put together a, a, a nice bit of tape over the last three to four weeks, making a bunch of big impact plays. Had a great touchdown grab high at the back of the end zone in between three defenders uh, in this particular game. Uh, Dan Arnold, not a guy that was sort of on my radar uh, or I thought, very much quite frankly mattered uh when we were doing say our preview uh before the season started he has uh played very well in the role they give him and has had a bunch of impact yeah and it's funny because it was almost like a 
a meme among Cardinals fans of like, you know, the church of Dan Arnold and the offseason. Everybody was convinced he was going to be great. And I was like, okay, well, it's a tight end in Cliff Kingsbury's system. Like, when's the last time a tight end produced for Cliff Kingsbury? And little did we know, Dan Arnold became actually a very clutch option over the middle and in the red zone for them. Like, Cardinals fans are right. Like, he's a pretty good young player. Um, I think he's he's got size. He's got ball skills. He's kind of got some Mike Kosicki to him, believe it or not. Yeah, he plays plays more like a wide receiver, plays like a very large wide receiver, runs pretty well. He's not a great blocker, uh, has a great catch radius, and has, like you said, has been clutch, has been come up big in big spots. Even though he doesn't have a ton of their snap count share, the snaps he does get, he's making impact. And a guy like that is you know, playing his way into more playing time, into into more impact. So wanted to give a shout to Dan Arnold. Uh, but the Cardinals sort of end up destroying the Giants, which is, I don't think, what either one of us thought going into this game. Um, but then again, we didn't see a guy like Hassan Reddick who has played sort of eh, <laughs> at a middling level most of the season, having five sacks and a couple of forced fumbles. That will that will turn a game. Yeah, he ate these tackles alive. And it's, it's kind of interesting because Andrew Thomas, you know, went – two straight games without giving up a single pressure. And all of a sudden he gives up seven pressures in this game and a couple sacks. Uh, Reddick was just killing him. Speed to power. Uh, you got on the right tackle. I can't remember who their starting right tackle in this game was, uh, but just murdered him. And, and Daniel Jones, my thing with him, like he only lost one of his three fumbles, but of course he fumbled because he's Daniel Jones. But the thing is when you have your right tackle getting caved in with speed to power, you got to feel it. You got to feel it. Yeah, you got to have a clock for sure. And he, I think that was the most noticeable thing. Look, I'm, I, I liked Colt McCoy coming out. I actually thought he was going to be more than he has been. Uh, he has been snake bitten by injuries, star crossed, whatever you want to say. He, he doesn't seem to be able to start more than three or four games before he gets injured. But boy can move. He understands, right, when that pressure's coming backside that he needs to step up or, you know, move. And it's not like Colt didn't get sacked, but uh, A, he didn't fumble when he did it, and he he did it less. And boy, Daniel Jones comes back in, and you're like, ah, yeah, right, he's back. He's going to stand there and get hit. And man, did he stand there and get hit versus the Cardinals. And it it cost the Giants the game. Look, they didn't play a great game otherwise, um, but it was a difference and a notable one. Um, just a side note, a uh, guy we really liked out of Oregon, Shane Lemieux, sixth straight start at guard for the Giants and is progressing pretty nicely for a mid-round interior offensive lineman. Uh, I think the Giants have something there, so shout yeah. out to him. By the way, I, I did want to nominate one of Reddick's five sacks. It was on a, a, a TE stunt where he kind of looped inside and just crushed jones and forced one of the fumbles yeah take your pick right when a guy gets five sacks probably one of them was was bootleg shot worthy uh especially when he's causing fumbles first of all the the move was great first of all like i mean he's he's super quick and he's definitely more at home as an edge rusher than an inside linebacker which i highlighted this offseason like hey you should probably play him on the edge and then they did towards the end of last year and now he's full-time edge rusher and he's got 10 sacks now um, but it was a great move. They got him free on a stunt. And the thing with, like, this one wasn't even Daniel Jones's fault. Like, there was nowhere for him to go. But, again, similar to everything I'm talking about, even when you know you're going to get hit, protect the ball. Don't fumble when you see it coming. Like, 
you know, Reddick put just kind of chopped at him right when he took him down, forced it loose. It was just a, a phenomenal hit. Jones also got sandwiched from the backside at the same time. He got crushed in this game. So I'm nominating that sack to kind of represent all of Reddick's sack sacks uh, in this game for shot of the week. I'll throw a clip up in the comments. You guys can vote uh, any way you choose. But that being said, let's move on to our next game, which is Jets Seahawks. Uh, I mean, I, I think we all expected the Seahawks to win. I don't know if I expected them to win by 37 points. Yeah, it was a mashing. Rich Eisen went on his show um, this week. Rich Eisen, for those of you that don't know, a lifelong Jets fan, uh, 51 years old, has been rooting for the Jets. In his words, as long as he can remember, um, Hardcore has never given never given that fandom up, even though he lives in Los Angeles with his family, and said this was the worst Jets performance he could remember and cited why he'd seen them lose by more and he cited how many times, but he cited why this felt like rock bottom um, for the Jets. Uh, That being said, Marcus May, a player we highlighted early on in the year, um, uh, you know, between between weeks like one and three played really, really well. Uh, and again, a one-handed pick in the end zone. Who knew that defensive backs were getting one-handed picks in the end zone this week? Well, we did, but, uh, no, Marcus May with an amazing one. And I just put the notes in the Jets are a speed bump right now. And I don't mean to discredit the effort of all the athletes on that team. They are trying. Um, Sam Darnold, actually, if you go back and chop up the Sam Darnold tape, he had a lot of nice throws in this game. I think there's something there with Sam Darnold. He came out this week and said, I want to be a Jet for life. And you said something like, seriously? For real? And I <laughs> <On> said, <purpose? laughs> Stockholm Syndrome? <laughs> right? Uh, Question mark? Because that's all it feels like when your abusers have trained you to say, yes, yes, I want to, I want to bleed green and white for the rest of my life. Um, I think Sam Darnold could have a very good second act somewhere else. If you go through and sort of pick this apart from a decision's and accuracy in a timing standpoint, he had some really good throws against the Seahawks. Now, the Seahawks don't have the best secondary. We all know that. Um, But Darnold made a bunch of plays in this game, and I really think you put him in a place uh, that has a bunch of weapons. Imagine Dak signs somewhere else, and he ends up going to the Cowboys, and now he's throwing to Amari and CD, and he's got, you know, Zeke and Tony Pollard to hand off to, like, Sam Darnold could look really good with a star on his helmet. Like, I think he's got potential as a distributor in a very talented offense. Um, but he's got to get out of New York. Uh, it's not good for him. And the Jets, especially at this point of the season, are kind of an afterthought. They are really just a warm-up for teams to to go get some stats. Yeah, I think the Colts and the Steelers are kind of what I'm looking at for him because I, I, I want him to get out of the Jets too. That's Trevor Lawrence's problem now. Um, but I think he could do some good things with Frank Reich to kind of revive his career. I think considering the weapons and the offensive line they have in Pittsburgh, vastly superior to what they have in the Jets. And I think, you know, say what you will about Randy Fichtner, or Fichtner, however you pronounce the Steelers offensive coordinator's name. Uh, Steelers fans don't like him very much, but he's better than Adam Gase. So I think, uh, and Dow Loggins, Dow so I, I think Darnold can do some nice things in Pittsburgh, just considering the talent he'd have to work with, but he's he's done as a Jet. Like, this is just, this team is awful. Adam Gase should have been fired last year, and the fact that he's still even there just signals to me that they they want to ensure that this team is as bad as humanly possible for the remaining 
you know, three weeks of the season because it's ah, it's just yeah, miserable. I can't pick up that win right now. Picking up that win right now would be devastating. Yeah, uh, with, with Jacksonville right behind them. so long. And this was the whole point. If you go back and watch Rich Eisen's, I, I, I'll just say commentary. It was more of a rant, but um, I have a ton of respect for Rich, and I really like him, but he's hurting as a Jets fan, and he was saying, look, look past this, right? Just push the pain down. This all soon will be over when we have a real quarterback, and that is coming, and it is coming soon. So don't pay attention to the short term. Just wait until it happens, and then, you know, we will be rapidly lifted out of this quagmire we exist in. And uh, I can't argue with him, right? If they get a real talent um, uh, at quarterback and clean out Gase and Loggins, uh, there could be a breath of fresh air in the Meadowlands pretty quickly. I mean, Darnold is a real talent at quarterback. They have a real talent at quarterback. I, I'm not they, arguing that. They just don't I, have a I real just coach. Said the opposite, right? <laughs> yeah. That I, I think he's very talented, but he is definitely on a team right now. We talked about this earlier on uh, with a with a coaching staff that is not utilizing the talent on that team uh, to create as many opportunities as they could because he made some great throws against you know a, a decently talented defense. They're not great, but you know they're a pro defense, and he. He made some very good throws, but it's not doing anything for the Jets right now. So time for that relationship to break up. Time for him to go somewhere else and get a fresh start. We both hope it's in a good place because we both think he's a talented player. Um, Speaking of the Cowboys, uh, Cowboys-Bengals, the Andy Dalton revenge game. Andy Dalton heading back to Cincinnati. Um, Interesting stat that popped up in this one. The Bengals only have 15 sacks on the year, including two that came in this game. So coming into this game, the Bengals going to week 14 had 13 sacks on the year, less than one a week. Ugh, that was surprising to me. It also told me, hmm, as I'm putting together draft prep, Cincinnati could use an edge or two, right? Dunlap left in the trade to the Seahawks, and they really need to restock that cupboard. There is not a lot of edge talent or Quite frankly, really interior defensive line talent. They had Geno for years. Um, that's not the case. They they need to put some pressure in that defensive line. It is sorely lacking. Um, the Cowboys win this game. I think it's almost embarrassing to Dallas that this game was close because Cincinnati with no Joe Burrow, the offensive line, as we've talked about, which was not great, losing their best player. Uh, they're even worse now. Uh, the fact that this game was close for the first three quarters is should be a huge wake-up call to Mike McCarthy and his staff that a team as talented as the Cowboys were playing anywhere near the level of the Bengals with no burrow and a banged-up offensive line. Um, but Bengals came out. Um, you know, they, they were gamers. They certainly competed. Uh, but any Cowboys fans that are celebrating this as a quality victory – um, should probably take a look in the mirror and say, eh, we trounced a team that really should have been trounced, and we didn't trounce them as hard or as quickly as we probably should have. Yeah, and there's been some reports that came out today that Mike Nolan is almost certainly going to be fired uh, for what has been an absolute travesty of a defense with the Cowboys this year. I agree with that decision. Who they bring in, I have no idea. I know Wade Phillips wants a job, though. And if anybody could turn around this defense in one season, Wade Phillips has a history of doing that. And I think that could go a long way, assuming you get Dak back. Fingers crossed for them. 
Uh, if you get Dak back, if you get the offensive line talent back because they got rocked by injuries as well, uh, you bring in Wade Phillips to fix this defense, which he has a history of doing that. Like the average ranking for his defense in his first years is in the top 10. Uh, every single time he's taken over a new defense, they've immediately been great. I can speak from experience as a Texans fan. He did it for us too. We were awful in 2010. He comes in in 2011, we're immediately top two. Uh, so that's kind of his specialty. You bring in Wade, who has a history with the franchise, you get Dak back. Like This could be the best team in the division, but Mike McCarthy's got to make some changes on his staff. They've got to get more offensive line depth. And McCarthy himself, I think... Uh, needs to learn from some of his failings as a coach this year on offense too. And I think you could potentially have to look at the offensive staff because I feel like uh, they've made some intriguing. And when I say intriguing, I mean rough decisions on offense in terms of play calling, in terms of touch distribution. They're still not giving the ball enough to Tony Pollard. I'm sorry. At this point, he's a better running back than Zeke. Zeke is still out touching Pollard, which is inexcusable to me. Pollard played so well this week, too. I wasn't even going to bring it up, but you brought it up, so now I have to talk about it. Um, had a tremendous touch on special teams as well, but uh, is showing just so much more pop than Zeke is right now. Uh, we talk about juice all the time, you know, zip on offense, and Pollard is running with both speed and power. I can't, can't agree with you more that Tony Pollard is one of those guys that is wildly underrated and... If I was looking for a feature back to start a team, a, a theoretical like 33rd team, and they said, you know, again, they had like an expansion draft and Pollard was left unprotected, he'd one of the first players I'd get um, on offense because he is a force. Plus, he gives you something on special teams. Uh, not that you're going to have your starting running back, you know, running back kicks, but he has that capability. Um, Pollard, an exceptionally talented player. Yeah, I just I think you gotta I think you have to gut the defensive coaching staff. I think you have to make significant changes to the offensive coaching staff, or at least just commit <laughs> to looking at the numbers and understanding, like, hey, when you give Tony Pollard the ball, good things happen. You should do that more. You know, there just there yeah. needs to be wholesale. Not even changes. analytics, just basic like effectiveness. Like yes, you yes. know, hand the ball to player A, result is B. B is yes. better than C. We should we should do B. <laughs> even yeah. just the eye test like the eye test tells you tony paul yep. is a better player right now give him the damn yep. ball i understand you paid zeke that's on you that's your mistake <laughs> like that's, yeah, not even that's a lot mistake. like arguing that you know you paid carson wentz so you should just keep playing him uh nope <laughs> yeah there comes a time when that's not the best decision for your football team strangely enough in the same division but um yeah mccarthy's got some work to do i think that's a fair statement yeah let's um Let's move on to another team in the NFC East who's doing much better, <laughs> relatively speaking. Yeah. That's Washington uh, taking on the 49ers. And man, first thing I got to say, Chase Young is unbelievable. I mean, we, had, we all had high expectations. <laughs> real, real for him. good. <laughs> real, real good. We all had high expectations for him coming out of Ohio State. Even though the numbers aren't like record shattering, the talent that he displays every single week in a very, very good defensive line. This kid is unbelievable. He reminds me a lot of Miles Garrett as a rookie, where, again, the numbers weren't quite there, and Khalil Mack was the same way. The numbers weren't quite there for Mack, and they weren't quite there for Garrett, but you saw the talent. I think year two for Chase Young is going to be exactly like Miles and exactly like Khalil, where everything comes together production-wise, because uh, he's just 
he's a crazy good defensive end. Yeah, he's wrecking stuff. He has the benefit of playing on a very good defensive line, which uh, not necessarily both of the other players you mentioned had that in their rookie years. They were clearly the best player. Like Chase Young, well, probably not clearly the best player on the Washington defensive line. They've they've invested a lot there, have a ton of talent, and yeah, he is still uh, standing out every week. Uh, wanted to talk about a couple of quick points for the 49ers in this game. Uh, Jeff Wilson, one of the many running backs for San Francisco, um, had a great rep in pass pro. And this is something as a running back aficionado that I think a lot of people don't appreciate, which is you got to hold up in pass pro. You cannot get your quarterback killed. And I don't care how talented you are with the ball. I don't care how many touchdowns you can score or runs you can break or tackles you can, you know, force missed. If you don't stand up in the face of the oncoming linebacker and just blunt that guy, you're not going to be on the field very much because your quarterback's going to take shots. Coaching staff's going to see it on film and they're going to say, yeah, you're not, you're getting five touches a game. That's it. Um, Jeff Wilson, who is probably the least heralded of the San Francisco running backs, tremendous rep in pass pro, uh, 1435 to go in the second quarter. So just kicking off the second quarter. Just absolutely does that. Stands up in the face of a straight-up A-gap blitz. um, Blows the guy up, runs him off to the edge, and gives his quarterback a ton of time to throw the ball. And then the TD throw to use check was a really fun design. So they had both the quarterback and the fullback head right at the snap on a run fake. Gets everybody moving right. Uh, Use check cuts back, and then the quarterback, who was Nick Mullins at the time, spins. Uh, so it's not quite orbit. He doesn't really go outside, but he basically spins back as if he was spinning out of a sack. Uh, and they turn it into a really quick uh, sort of inside screen pass to the fullback for a touchdown. Really cool design. Whole line shifts right. Um, there's actually a running back on the play. He too goes right. Everybody starts moving right. Juszczyk makes a little jab step, goes back to the left. Mullins spins out backwards uh, to get himself some space, flips it to Juszczyk for a touchdown. Just a cool little play design. Um, not that many teams even have fullbacks, and certainly nobody's got a fullback like Juszczyk in terms of multi-role capability. Just one of those cool little details in a, in a bigger and interesting game that was fun to watch and fun to call out. Kyle's got one every week, man. Every at single least, week. At least one. <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll bust out. So, and usually it involves Kyle Juszczyk, now that I think about it. <laughs> yeah, I, he's such a people's. It's an overused term, but Swiss Army knife, right? Can do a little bit of everything. Pass receiver, blocker, uh, lead blocker, uh, you know, run a wheel route and run it like a wide receiver. Like Juszczyk, when everybody pay when they paid him a ton of money as a fullback, everybody was like, dinosaur they don't know what they're doing and it's like eh, you haven't really looked at use check he's he's one of the few guys in the league that can do all those things at a really high level um and shanahan has every you know shanahan and lynch have every idea how they're going to use him and get that money out of him and especially with kittle out of the lineup because i feel like he's sort of a kindred spirit with kittle in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. um they're using him as a as a sort of almost Kittle replacement or Kittle light. Now nobody replaces George Kittle fully, uh, but Usechek is making that loss a little bit easier to bear. And good on him for saying, "Hey, you know, we're going to increase your load. We know you can do more, uh, and we're going to use you in some creative and fun ways." And he he looks like he's loving it. Yeah, he's he's probably one of my favorite, and I, I use this term on purpose, offensive weapons in the league because he is one. 
He is absolutely a yeah. weapon in in every yeah. single you know fa- every single way. Like in terms of blocking, catching, does stuff on special teams, uh, sells out every single play, plays hard, executes his assignments. Like he's he's just the best. Like he's the best at his position in the league. Love that dude. Uh, and my last note for this game, uh, Alex Smith did get hurt, apparently reported a calf strain. So Dwayne Haskins did come in, you know, didn't do anything special, but he was efficient, moved the chains a few times when needed, uh, you know, basically just didn't make any mistakes so that this defense could win the game for him. Uh, I, I do think that that might, assuming Smith comes back, that might have been some of the last passes Haskins throws for the Washington football team. And he, just like Darnold, is somebody that I think he has a lot of talent. Uh, and I want to see him play somewhere else that can maybe develop that talent, give him a fresh start, because I think he has a chance. I just don't think he has a chance in Washington. Yeah, I would I would take Darnold in a heartbeat. I would definitely take Haskins as a developmental guy, uh, because I agree. I liked him coming out. Uh, it hasn't worked out. He did take a bad sack this week. Um, but it... It'll be necessary, I think, for him to get a fresh start. Uh, but if you're telling me to pick straight up between him and Darnold, I'll take Darnold just because of his starting experience and what he's shown so far. He's farther along in his curve. Uh, whatever he's going to be able to get out of what he has, he's closer to uh, than Haskins is. I don't necessarily disagree. Um, I do think that Haskins, in terms of physical talent, Oh, ceiling, physical ceiling. He's definitely higher, but he's got to go to the right. Like, like Haskins, I think would benefit from like the Sean Payton school of quarterbacks, you know, because Taysom Hill's a free agent after this year. Jameis Winston's a free agent after this year. Like if you're looking for a guy who's going to be dirt cheap or cost you almost nothing picks wise, and you still have three years of, of contract control. Eh, I could see it. I could definitely see it. I, I would I would love to see him work with Sean Payton in that offense, especially with his talent. Sean Payton's a great developer of quarterbacks. He made Taysom Hill passable as a starter in this league. I don't really like Taysom Hill. Staggering achievement. <laughs> staggering achievement. I, I don't like Taysom Hill like as a long-term starter, but they've they've won a lot of games. Um, well, not a lot, but they've, they've only taken one loss with him at starter so far, which is saying something because he's not that good. <laughs> But we'll, actually, I, I, why don't we just skip ahead to the Saints-Eagles game? I have it further down on the schedule, but since we're on the subject of Taysom, why don't we actually talk about the Saints-Eagles game? Because this was their first loss under Taysom Hill, and I think we did see some of the, let's just call it limitations in accuracy, in playmaking ability as a passer. I mean, he missed some brutal ones to Emmanuel Sanders that he definitely wants back. Um, meanwhile, Jalen Hurts, you know, he, he acquitted himself pretty well, in my opinion. I think he wasn't also great as a passer, but he didn't take any, any bad sacks. Uh, he was very productive as a rusher. He made do with the terrible pass protection that was given to him. And he made just enough throws, unlike Hill, to get a win in this game. Uh, in what was, I guess you could call it a defensive battle, but it was really more like an offensive wet noodle fight. Uh, but I, I thought Jalen played better than Taysom, and to me, that's an indictment on Taysom. I think it's both, and it's important, again, when we talk about what does a team have in the barn or, or at its disposal, whether it's in terms of uh, a staff or in terms of the players it has at its disposal. This team is exactly the same team that Carson Wentz has been 
basically stumbling along with for weeks now. No major changes, no major returns, no major changes in personnel that would make a substantive difference. Hertz made this offense look workable with all the exact same pieces and came out with a win against a team that was, I would say, you know, definitely favored, certainly if Carson had stayed in the lineup. That's a thing, right? A guy in his first start coming in with exactly the same talent beats a team he's not supposed to beat because, look, he made plays. Was he perfect as a passer? No. He's definitely growing as a passer. Did he make some good passes? He certainly did. Had a couple nice ones to Rager. And his running is a game changer. Um, You know, Carson is an incredibly tough runner. He's a good athlete too, but he's not the runner that Jalen Hurts is. Jalen Hurts had over 100 yards in his first game. Did he run a few times when he should have passed? Yeah. Did he miss some open passes when he went for a shorter pass that he had a longer pass open or something that, again, with a little bit of uh, connection, which he has very probably little of with his receivers because he doesn't get a lot of work with them. Carson's been taking all the first team reps for quite a while. Uh, he, He looked very efficient. The team rallied to him and they ended up beating a superior opponent in his first start that's a big deal all of those things are a big deal and he's only the second quarterback in nfl history to beat a team on a nine plus game win streak in their first start the the last one to do it was ron jaworski it was, was a hell of a long time ago <laughs> well isn't that appropriate uh it's very appropriate but uh, you know, he again, he just he didn't make the same mistakes that Carson was making. And the, and the mistakes were what was killing Carson. It was the turnovers. It was the sacks. It was the picks. Uh, it was the the untimely mental errors that would sink this team because they're not very good. And when you're not very good, you can't afford to to make those mistakes, because unlike, say, a team like the Chiefs, you can't dig yourself out of that hole. You're not good enough no your margin is just a lot smaller yes and wanted to give a shout out to miles sanders went for 82 and a td we don't typically see runs that long outside of people like derrick henry um miles sanders has been playing pretty well all year but that was uh really impressive fit his strengths got through a hole to the outside turned it on beat everybody the end zone um quick shout out to miles sanders because we haven't said his name very much on the podcast uh, and then we have a bootleg shot of the week nominee out of this game too, the Josh Sweat strip sack of the aforementioned Taysom Hill uh, came around uh, the left tackle, came off the right edge of the defense, uh, cleared the tackle with his hands, and then hit Taysom real hard in the back and swiped down at the same time, caused the fumble, Eagles recovered, uh, big play, big impact, great play by Josh Sweat. When Sweat was coming out, you know, one of the the big things that people talked about was really long frame. And when he's got a runway, he's got really good power. And that sack he had on uh, Teron Armstead, where it was, it was just a long arm move where it's like, Hey, I'm getting my shoulders lower than you. And there's an old kind of defensive line coach um, term called one arm is longer than two, where is if you're going for a bull rush or if you're going for a stab or anything like that, use your inside arm, use one arm because you can kind of turn your shoulders and outreach the tackle who's coming in with two hands. One arm is, quote-unquote, longer than two. So he did that on Armstead. He got low, you know, locked out his elbow, drove with his legs, and just kind of kept driving, 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 drove him straight into Taysom Hill's lap and finished with a sack. Just phenomenal play. Really showed off his physical talent. 
Because Teron Armstead's an elite left tackle in this league. Like, no two bones about it. He's phenomenal. And for you to do that against somebody that quick and that strong like Teron Armstead, uh, it says a lot. So I, I think Sweat's coming along nicely. I think he's growing into his frame. I think he's growing into his physical ability. And uh, I'm excited to see what he does for the Eagles in the future. I think they got a good one there. For sure. We could move on to Falcons Chargers, which I saw the Spider-Man meme. If those of you who are not familiar with the meme is two copies of Spider-Man pointing at each other. And that was Matt Ryan and Justin Herbert uh, and older (laughs) Matt Ryan and younger Justin Herbert. Uh, But an interesting game. And I want to talk about uh, Russell Gage to the Ridley tight uh, touchdown. This is, uh, again, that's a Falcons wide receiver throwing to another Falcons wide receiver. They actually lined up Matt Ryan at wide receiver and Gage threw that better than a lot of QBs that I've watched this week. It was a 32-yarder. He threw it over coverage perfectly into the hands of Calvin Ridley um, and then came back and made a couple of catches. We've mentioned his name for the last three weeks. Gage has been playing very, very well in a loaded Falcons wide receiving core. The fact that he's making any noise at all is pretty notable. And then he comes in and throws a touchdown this week. Um, he's he's having himself uh, quite an interesting little month here uh, for the Falcons. So keep Russell Gage on your radar. Um, and then a stat came up during the broadcast that I had to sort of rewind and listen to again. The Chargers have given up. This is going to kill you. The Chargers have given up a touchdown, not a field goal a touchdown in 18 consecutive goal-to-go situations. So that How means that first and possible? less than 10, they have given up 18 straight touchdowns, not not even field goals, in that particular situation. That's crazy talk. Like, that's insane. That needs, uh, in the words of one of my favorite friends from North Carolina, that needs fixed. <laughs> I just... How do you not even accidentally get a red zone stop? Uh, you know, how does somebody not self-destruct against you? I don't know, um, <laughs> but it definitely, uh, I don't know. It, it begs the question at the, at the very, at the very least, but this was an interception fest at the end. Uh, the Chargers threw on the, the Falcons threw one right back, but when it counted, Herbert made a play at the end that he had to have to lift the Chargers uh, they do win this game. We've given both of these teams uh, a lot of garbage for being able to lose creatively at the end. Um, the Chargers lost less and ended up with the W whether or not they wanted it. They tried to hand it back a couple times, but they grudgingly took the win and uh, sent the Falcons back home. The fact that this game was tied 17-17 to the two-minute warning and we knew that we weren't done with interceptions told you everything you need to know about the Falcons and the Chargers this year. Like, everybody saw that coming. There was no way this game was going to be won by more than three points. And there was no way this game was going to have less than four turnovers. No, they're too similar. Well, they have been too similar for pretty much the entire year. So, you know, not a ton to say about that. These teams are both, I think, playing out the string. Um, You know, one's already fired their coach. One's likely to fire their coach. Um, We'll see some changes here. Oh, we have to talk about that that uh, special teams disaster the Chargers had again. I was really going to try and sweep that under the rug this week. No, no, we're not doing that. We're not sweeping that. That mess has to be talked about. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Where they forgot they didn't have a timeout. They They left the offense on the field 
because I I don't know if they just they didn't know what down it was. I don't know if they didn't know they had a timeout. I don't know what the hell it was. They tried to run the field goal unit on late. There's like 20 guys on the field. They snap it and try to kick a field goal. I have I've never seen that before. Where a, a team just like forgets they don't have a timeout or forgets the down and like I don't know what the hell happened. But only the Chargers can do that this year under Anthony Lynn. Like, it is so Chargers. And it's not even the first time that they've done something like that. They just did it last week. Uh, The Chargers are unbelievable. uh, You know, the Chargers and short clock situations, uh, a quote-unquote work in progress. But it's a lot of work and not much progress. Oh, my God. I just, only the Chargers, It's not pretty. No, it's not pretty. So let's go on to the Colts Raiders. Uh, a one-handed interception. What? So weird this week uh, by Moore. Beautiful, beautiful play. One of the best of the week. I th- all of them were were really pretty, but that one was aggressive and well-timed. Uh, big, big play. Need to talk about Jonathan Taylor. Ran big all day and picked up the blitz. I talked about this earlier with running backs. Taylor certainly has all the physical capabilities. He is a big dude. Former track star ton of speed showed both of those things but um ran hard uh ran with speed and showed power and blitz pickup so taylor again one of those rookies that started off and was sort of overshadowed by some of his teammates didn't have the early production i know that probably led to a lot of fantasy managers you know trading him or or popping him out of their lineup if you have him for the stretch run you're gonna feel pretty good because indy's gonna lean on him like they did this week and um, again, we had another wide receiver pass. This was Zay Jones on the Raiders side passing to Nelson Aguilar. Uh, it seems like for a while it was always the Browns, right, with the trick plays. And uh, now we've started to see them sprinkled around. Chargers or the Falcons had theirs. Uh, Raiders had theirs. The Raiders, you know, have fallen off. Right? They were on a roll. They were uh, taking teams like the Chiefs to the wire. They feel like you know they fired their defensive coordinator. A uh, couple of game losing streak here. It really feels like the Raiders have lost their shine heading into the end of the season. A big part of it is because their defense is just not reliable at all. Indy went 8 for 11 on third down. That is a 73% conversion rate on third down, which is astronomical. The yeah. Raiders are now the fourth worst third down defense in the league behind only uh tennessee and carolina they're tied with dallas at 20 at 30th i guess you can call it anything Um, that you're tied with dallas in with defense this year is a bad omen 50 percent allowing third down conversions is just nightmarish absolutely all i mean they're worse than detroit they're worse than seattle they're worse than the jets they're worse than houston they're worse than Cincinnati. Like it's a. <laughs> I was waiting for that. They're defense. worse than Houston. No. Yeah, that's saying a lot. Yeah. Like it's it's a bad third down defense, which is probably why Paul Gunther was fired because Paul Gunther is a disciple uh, disciple of Mike Zimmer, who never has bad third down defenses. That's why Gunther was hired was to make this a good third down defense to be able to get pressure. Uh, you know, to to be able to protect the middle of the field. They have not been able to do that. Uh, really ever since they kind of had a decent showing against Mahomes, and by decent, I mean only allowed 30 points. Uh, it's kind of been all downhill from there. Jonathan Abram has not developed the way they were hoping as a first-round pick. The pass rush hasn't been great. It's It was time. 
for for a change. Uh, they're bringing in Mark Marinelli, who was an assistant, and uh, or not Mark Marinelli, uh, Rod Marinelli, who's now the defensive coordinator, who has a track record as a defensive coordinator and has put together some pretty decent defenses in the past, but can't be worse than it already was because they were one of the worst in the league. So we'll see how that ends up, uh, you know, going forward. They're still in the hunt for the playoffs, but they need that defense to step up if they want a chance to make it. Yeah. Right now they seem like a flawed team. Uh, Packers lions, uh, NFC North tilt. Uh, my only note is that Rogers, Rogers just makes your margin so small as an opponent because he can make anything on offense look good. Mm-hmm. And people get lulled into the fact of, oh, maybe that guy's pretty good. I give you case in point. Robert Tanyan, who's a player I liked coming out, but really is sort of like a third tight end, has nine scores this year. Let me repeat that. Robert Tanyan has nine touchdowns. If you think Robert Tanyan has probably half of that playing anywhere else in the league, you're kidding yourself. The reason Tanyan is sniffing 10 touchdowns, again, double-digit scores, is because he plays with Aaron Rodgers, and that's it. I mean, this was a tight-end offense or tight-end-friendly offense to begin with, but Again, as you said, with Rodgers, anybody can, any position can be friendly. Uh, when you have a guy like Aaron Rodgers who can extend plays, deadly accurate, has the arm to make every single throw, brilliant pre-snap, brilliant post-snap. Uh, I'm, I mean, I, I guess I could say I'm surprised by this, but I'm really not because it seems like every single year Rodgers does this. Like he has some underrated receiver that just goes absolutely off in the red zone. Like one year it was James Jones getting 14 or 15 touchdowns. Jordy had some years where he just had crazy touchdown numbers. Like Aaron has his favorites uh, in terms of red zone targets. And it can't all just be Devonte Adams, even though Devonte Adams is also having a phenomenal year. Like he, he's always got that one guy who's his number two or his number three target in the red zone that he just feeds and feeds and feeds this year. It's Robert Tanyan. He, he might end up leading tight ends and touchdowns when all said and done, which is no small feat. Um, but yeah, I, he's had a, just a, a really great year uh, in general. And Devontae Adams, who I just mentioned, I mean, every single year he and Rodgers, or not every single year, every single week he and Rodgers make a play that just makes you go, wow. Uh, in this game, it was a phenomenal adjustment against stack technique where Rodgers, instead of kind of uh, throwing it high and wide for him to adjust to it back shoulder. He threw it kind of flat and inside, and Devante adjusted under the stack technique from the corner and just kind of cut it off and then took off and ran before the corner could even speed turn and chase him down. Just a monster, monster play, and not really an adjustment you see very often against stack technique. Most quarterbacks and most receivers will just throw that back shoulder and have him stop and turn but Rodgers trusted Adams to go attack inside when the DB had his eyes turned and he did paid it off with a huge score Um, and that just kind of speaks to their connection is the fact they can kind of do unconventional things against certain techniques that DBs use to play uh, as they say from the top down as DB coaches say you know if you can attack that in unconventional ways in ways that a corner does not expect you're going to get results out of it and they're one of the few duos, quarterback and receiver, that can do that. Yeah, we talked about mind meld earlier when we were talking about the Chiefs and Travis Kelsey and, and Hill uh, having that connection with Mahomes. That connection is 
equally as strong between Rodgers and Adams. Uh, Rodgers is playing at an MVP level, and Adams is, you know, not only supporting that effort, but also benefiting from it. Uh, And that play was a tremendous example of them being so on the same page that it really left the DBs sort of hung out to dry. As soon as he cut inside, caught that ball, you could see both of them kind of look at each other and they're like, are we going to we're we're not going to catch him. He's going all the way, right? <laughs> he just he just broke our angle, both of us, uh, and neither one of us expected it. It was very much that kind of play. It was very long touchdowns. So, um, yeah, <laughs> Aaron Rodgers, good. Newsflash, not not surprising. Rodgers, good. Lions, bad. <laughs> yeah, not, again, not surprising and not surprising. Let's move on to the Vikes and Bucks. Uh, so Dalvin Cook and Devonte Adams both have four. 14 touchdowns this season i think that's crazy because 14 touchdowns is league leading uh from a skill position player and two of those guys play in the nfc north uh that's pretty crazy that between the two of them they have 28 touchdowns this year um note about the buccaneers they with the whole antonio brown experiment had kind of forgotten about scotty miller scotty miller a guy that is their speed threat made a ton of noise in the preseason Uh, established a connection very quickly with Tom Brady, which does not always happen with Tom Brady and new receivers. Uh, He leaned on him in the early part of the year before Antonio Brown was on the roster. And then he kind of got left out of the game plan. And that's a mistake for Tampa Bay. Scott Miller had another long touchdown, 51, 52 yards uh, from the ageless Tom Brady, who can uncork 50 yard bombs uh, on a pinpoint, which just doesn't seem fair. seems like he may have re-upped his deal with the devil. Uh, but Scotty Miller makes this offense tick from a deep threat perspective. And if they want to go anywhere down the stretch, they can't forget about Scotty Miller. He makes things happen uh, in that offense. And other than that, uh, the Vikings just kind of wilted on the road late season um, in Tampa Bay, and they did not put up a ton of points. They ended up with about 14 meaningful points in this game. Uh, that's not going to be enough to beat most teams in the NFL one score per half is unless you have a phenomenal um, sort of Chicago level defense before the last three weeks that's not going to be good enough Um, Vikings despite all their prodigious offensive talent um, couldn't come up with it and uh, that doesn't bode for them well making any noise uh, sort of from this point on and the uh, Vikings receiving duo of Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen was very quiet. This was a bounce back game, I think, for the Tampa Bay secondary. The corners were on their shit. Jefferson had seven targets, but only had four catches for less than 40 yards. He had 39 on the day, uh, only had two first downs. Adam Thielen, same thing, was limited to four targets, only three catches, also 39 yards. Uh, So if you're only getting, you know, 78 yards out of your top two receivers, because they're they're locked down by you know uh, Carlton Davis and uh, Antoine Winfield got involved as well. They were doubling Jefferson pretty heavily. Like if your receivers aren't getting open, there's not really a whole lot Kirk can do. <laughs> to be honest, uh, I, I he didn't have great uh, he didn't have a great day himself, Kirk Cousins. But I think he kind of did the best with what he could. Nobody was getting open. The pressure was great. It was just, it was an off day for the offense, to be honest. It was just, the only thing that was really working was the run game. And I, I think uh, Tampa, they weren't throwing as much pressure as they normally do in terms of like blitzes. They didn't really want to leave 
huge voids in the middle of the field for Kirk to throw under pressure to Jefferson because he's been statistically one of the best quarterbacks in the league against blitzes and, and under pressure. So I, I think they just kind of sat back. They played coverage. They doubled Jefferson, and they said, go beat us with everybody else, and they couldn't. You know, So they were forced to just run the ball, but that wasn't enough to keep up with Tom Brady uh, in terms of putting points on the board, and they just kind of won that war of attrition. It was a great game plan by the Tampa defense, um, kind of a bounce-back game for that staff, a bounce-back game for that secondary. And I think Tampa's taken plenty of lumps this year, especially in primetime games, but they needed this win desperately. I think they needed to remind themselves that they could play a complete team game. And for the first time in a while, they did that. Yeah, agreed. It was a good look for Tampa Bay. They needed a bounce-back game. Um, So that takes us to Steelers-Bills. Last game we're going to talk about and uh my notes on this one buffalo took a punch or two uh this game was even throughout the first oh more than half and then they sort of put their foot down which is a really good showing by a late uh team late in the season that's looking to be confident at the right time and they looked that way when they decided that they were going to kind of step on the accelerator and leave Pittsburgh and start making plays down the stretch. They did so, and it became pretty clear who was going to win the game. Uh, It wasn't in question at the end. Um, You made a note about Stephon Diggs, who's been playing pretty well, Uh, but what did you want to say about Stephon in this particular game? Uh, There is no DBs on that Steelers roster that can cover him. There's very few DBs in the league, period, that can cover him. But Buffalo, it kind of took them a while to realize, like, we got to feed him the ball because they're not going to stop him. He ended up with 10 catches, a buck 30, and a touchdown on the day, and it became very clear if it was in man coverage, they were throwing a Stephon. If it was if it was in zone coverage, they were going to block it up with six and seven man protections and wait for Stephon to kind of cross the field because as soon as they could break that bracket, he was going to be open again. They just had to wait a little bit longer against zone than they do against man because he gets open almost immediately against man. Um, but like that was their game plan in the second half was reminding themselves like, look, they can't do anything about Stefan Diggs. So we're going to do everything we can to get him the ball. And they did. And once they kind of did that, the offense really opened up, um, phenomenal game plan again by, by Brian Dable, offensive coordinator of the bills. Who's on the short list for head coaching positions around the league. I think he's one of the best OCs in the league this year. His development of Josh Allen into the monster that he is today is to be commended. Josh Allen himself had another really, really solid day. He's putting together probably not an MVP campaign because Pat Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers exist, but I think he's at least in consideration for Offensive Player of the Year, and at least he should be, in my opinion. Um, one of the best quarterbacks in the league this year by far. And uh, on the other side of the ball, Steelers just couldn't keep up. Deontay Johnson, again, had problems with drops. He's the only player in the league with double digits and drops. He leads the league with 12. And they weren't really, uh, they weren't getting anything else out, out of any of the other weapons. I, I don't think they've made a concerted effort to get um, Chase Claypool the ball in several games now. When I'm, to me, I'm glad you brought that up because his share has dropped precipitously. He was on that why. stretch where he was up to ten touchdowns. I don't either because he was providing them the spark, um, especially vertically to make those big plays. We talked about it with the Chiefs, and it was the Steelers' version of that. He was breaking open games uh, down the middle or on the edge, didn't matter, Uh, had a great run of production, and suddenly hit a stretch about three weeks ago where his target share and even snap share 
Um, not just target share, but he is not on the field as much. Um, and don't know what happened if he hit his sort of uh, rookie wall or uh, ran afoul of the coaching staff. Have no idea, no intel on that, no inside knowledge. But the bottom line of results is he's been on the field for way less snaps. His snap count and snap share have gone down. And as a result, his target share is basically in the toilet. And uh, the Steelers offense is not as effective as when he was in there. So uh, if they're trying to make some noise here at the end of the season, they need Claypool to come back in a big way and provide them some of those shot plays. I think a big part of it, Deontay Johnson's a great route runner. He gets open very easily. But the job title is wide receiver, and it's the receiving part he has a problem with. At least Claypool can catch the damn ball. Even if the routes aren't as crisp, even if the separation isn't as great, he catches the ball. I just, I I don't, again, this is another problem that Steelers fans have with this coaching staff, particularly on the offensive side of the ball, is they feel like the touch distribution has been way out of whack. Uh, In particular with Claypool not getting the ball as much as he should. Uh, They've been feeding every other receiver on the roster except for him. And I don't get it. So hopefully they fix that. They're, I think they've already cemented uh, that they're in the playoffs. So we know they're going to be there. The question is if they're even going to have a shot at the first seed now. They probably won't because they lost this game. Um, and right now they're, they're fighting for the second seed so that they can at least host a, a playoff game or two. But if they don't get this offense sorted out, man, they could slip even further down because Cleveland's coming. Yeah, it could be an early exit for them if they don't get their balance back because they were in stride in the middle of the season and they're starting to tail off in the wrong direction uh, right at the wrong time. So hoping for Steelers fans that they get that turned around because it is a talented team. Again, it's not a team short on talent, really on either side of the ball. But uh, if you're not having all your pieces work together, and uh, create uh, the maximum result, you're not going to get through the playoffs because everybody ups it. Um, That brings us to the bootleg shot of the week summary. We talked about Jeremy Chin with his huge sack and fumble shot on Drew Locke. We talked about Josh Sweat and his strip sack of Taysom Hill. Uh, And we talked about Hassan Reddick, same thing, sack and fumble on Daniel Jones off a TE stunt. The two we didn't talk about are offensive players and Zach Pascal, who, yep, that's right, he's a wide receiver, had a monster chip block, if you want to call it that. I'll call it a pancake versus the Raiders. He had a non-rushing linebacker on the edge and was supposed to chip him and knocked him on his can uh, before heading out on his route. Really solid shot there. Um, Shout out to Brandon Thorne for highlighting that one. We will put up his Twitter video uh, of that particular chip by Zach Pascal. And then Cole Komet, the tight end for the Chicago Bears, fighting for extra yards after screen, bulldozing some of the Texans. This was nominated as the angry run of the week on Good Morning Football, but we are going to nominate it for a bootleg shot of the week as well. Cole Komet displaying some of that fighting style, knocking over a couple of Texans before being gang tackled. Um, so those are our bootleg shot of the week nominees in summary. What do you got coming out this week? What did you settle on? So I got a film room coming out on the Ravens run game where I'm I'm going to show actual visual aids for everything I talked about when we talked about that uh, Ravens-Browns game with the QB counter bash and the play call sequencing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm going to do a whole episode on that because I think it's really, really fascinating and so far damn near unstoppable. Nobody's really found a way to stop it yet. So that should be a good episode. And then the following week, I think, is when I'm going to finally tackle that KC offense and 
kind of explaining what they do well, what they don't do well, what works against them, and what absolutely does not work against them. Right, what to stay away from if you don't want to get your hand burned. Uh, so I'll be putting out another Bears Over Beers this week. Uh, my other co-host, JB, is on his bye week, so I'll be having a special guest on. You're going to want to listen in for that one. Uh, his first time on the show. Uh, I'm excited to have him and talk about that. Um, plenty to keep watching for. Uh, plenty for us coming up to keep listening for. So keep it here, and uh, until then, we will talk to you soon. Later. Later.